Coming up next, I like The Last Battle. I'm excited to talk about this book. Guys, we can't put it off any longer. We can't. We need to talk about the last battle. Bo. Ugh. Talk about, thank goodness it's the last battle. That's right. The last battle of the bookening with- With C.S. Lewis. That's right. Probably not, though. Before we throw him into Tash, who right. he called forth by his bad theology. Clive Staples Lewis doesn't even sound like a name. Sounds no. like a sentence where a crazy person named Clive does something to Lewis. Yeah. He stapled him. Yeah. <laughs> nice name, Lewis. Yeah. Staples. What a weird middle name. Who names their kids? Yeah. Dads. Might as well run What's Clive that? Office Depot, Lewis. <laughs> Better than Staples. Great Last... job there on your name, yeah. Lewis. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. More like Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Oh, yeah. Prince Caspian. More like minced passive gum. Man. Man. Yeah. yeah there that's we go. Better than gum. <laughs> Voyage the, of the, the Dawn. The last battle, more like, thank goodness it's the past battle. <laughs> exactly. Voyage of the Dawn Treader, more like your clothes, if you wash them with Dawn, will be better. In the Dawn, I'm going to put this in the shredder. The silver chair, more like <laughs> silver. Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> the horse and his boy, more like the horse and his doy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now that the new people and all the old people and wait, all of our friends wait, and supporters wait, are gone. Magician's wait, nephew, wait, more like... Magician's nephew-wee. Yeah, who? <laughs> all right, are the new listeners gone? I really like this book a lot. And, and the supporters and, and the, our friends and oh, yeah, look, we're down to everybody zero. else. We are zero down to zero. <laughs> Nobody Folks, is listening to us now. I was kidding. They didn't get that far. It doesn't matter. They, they did. They, our listeners are capable of knowing when we're kidding. I like C.S. Lewis. I like The Last Battle. I'm excited to talk about this book. This book, let me take you guys back. I actually did a little research. I think, I think this will be fun. Maybe oh. I'll start doing this for every book. Wow. Probably not. But I thought it would be fun for doing this book. Isn't that my job? No, no, no. This isn't. Brandon, I would not. I, I'm not trying to give any context. I'm just going to give a very specific kind of context that I think might be a little bit fun. Okay. This book. Yeah. Let me tell you guys about a little year called 1956. Nice year. President Dwight D. Eisenhower, Republican, Was Kansas, New York, is on mm -hmm. the American throne. In 1961, he will warn of the military-industrial complex he helped create. Vice President? Anyone? Give you a hint. He's not a crook, at least according to him. Oh, that guy. Nixon. Nixon! The economy is booming in the post-war years. Women make up much of the workforce, thanks to World War II. And yet, they are expected by society to find their primary identity as wives and mothers. It's not uncommon for commodities to sell their wares to women on the direct appeal of what will help them serve their husbands. Husband-pleasing coffee, sold by the Acne Company. February 22nd, Elvis Presley enters the United States music charts for the first time with Heartbreak Hotel. February 23rd, little girl named Norma Jean Mortensen legally changes her name to... 
Goodbye, no Jean. To Marilyn Monroe. Okay. March 15th, the Broadway musical What opens in New York City. The Broadway musical What? No, it's not called What. Hair. Nope. We're uh, way before that. The Horse and His Boy. Very famous thing. <laughs> Got a guy named Henry Higgins, a lady named Eliza. Oh, Goodwill. yeah. Lighthouse is doing it. Yeah. My yeah. Fair Lady. My Fair, My lady. fair lady. Starring Julie Jean. Andrews. Julie Andrews. That's absolutely right. May 2nd, the United Methodist Church in America decides in its general conference to grant women full ordained clergy status. Wow, that was in 56? On May 22nd, 1956? That's absolutely right. That's my dad's birthday. Your dad was born? On May 22nd, 1956. Wow, the same day that the United Methodist Church in America decided at its general conference to grant women full ordained clergy status. Your dad must be so proud. July 30th, a joint resolution of Congress is signed by President Dwight D. Eisenhower authorizing America's motto, the national motto, which is... God we trust. That's right. That did not come about until July 30th, 1956. Wow. September 13th, the hard disk drive is invented by an IBM team. October 5th, Cecil B. DeMille's epic film... The Ten Commandments, starring Charlton Heston as Moses, is released in the United States. It will be in the top ten of the worldwide list of highest-grossing films of all times, adjusted for inflation. October 8th, baseball pitcher Don Larson of the New York Yankees throws perfect the- Perfect game in the World Series. The only perfect game in the World Series. And who's, wow. the, catch- and who's the catcher? Yogi Berra. That's absolutely right. November 25th- Classic, classic scene. If you've ever seen the black and white footage of a catcher running up and jumping into the arms, wrapping both legs around his pitcher- that's the scene. That's the Yogi Berra, Don Larson. I thought Yogi Berra just 1956 stole. World Series. Picking the best. Yeah. <laughs> Nicely done, Brandon. Thank you. You're a moron. I, I award you no and points. I hate you. <laughs> November 25th, Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, Raul Castro depart from Tuxpan, Veracruz, Mexico, en route to Santiago de Cuba aboard the yacht Granma with 82 men. They will land in Cuba, and soon the revolution will Whoa. be at hand. December 31st, Bob Barker makes his television debut. No, he doesn't. As the host of the game show, Truth or Consequences, in the United States. Really? That's the year 1956. Isn't that kind of fun? Is Bob Barker still alive? He's still with us. 95 years young. Bob Barker. Now, nestled in among those events. Isn't it kind of fun? I thought it was kind of fun to give a little context like that, just to see. What was happening in England at the time? Oh, I have no idea. (laughs) No, couldn't care less. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know one thing that was happening happening in England. Well, Brandon, I'll tell you. On September 4th, yeah. 1956, a little book called The Last Battle, published by one Clive Staples Lewis. Mm-hmm. The final book of the Narnia septology? What would you call anology? Yeah, septology, I suppose, or heptology. But heptology? Yeah, in poetry, it's called heptameter as opposed to septameter. Heptameter is with the seven. Sometimes they call it septameter when you're teaching young kids, but usually it's heptameter. Let's go with heptology then. Sounds like, for some reason, the study of lizards. It does sound like the study of lizards. The seventh book in the heptology and study of lizards that is the Chronicles of Narnia is released. It is interesting to think about the fact that communism is in full swing, given what we're about to discuss in this book, that the Cold War is going on, Oh yeah. that Cuba is in the midst of being revolutionized. Media, Elvis, all this stuff. I don't know. I don't have any particular point to make, but I don't know. I just thought it was fun to kind of place it in context. Reading that you were about to offer us, like, yeah, this was a commentary on socialism and communism. Oh, I think it probably was, right? The part where they're like, you can earn your wages and they'll be given to us. Oh, and then we can do something with them. Okay. Yeah. There's that part. I guess I'm an idiot, Nathan. Well, and we, we had it in our last book. Aslan's like, 
See to it that you don't blow each other up with nuclear arms. You know what? I'm just going to get it out of the way. Yes, sir. Maybe that's because this book, less than some of the other ones, that sort of allegory that may or may not have been going on in the background Mm -hmm. didn't seem so ham-fisted. It didn't bother me. Well, let's talk about it. Yeah. What did you guys think about the last battle? I liked it. Yeah? Yeah. I was surprised, but I liked it. I thought this was going to be my bottom you thought, I think we, I think, well, actually, I'm going to take a little credit here. I think I predicted, let me see here, if I'm remembering correctly. That you would like it better than you remembered. I predicted accurately, I believe. Brandon said it will be the worst. Jake said it will be the worst. Nathan, the prophet Nathan said, we will like it better than we think. Oh, shoot. Okay, this is maybe wasn't so prophetic, but it will still be the worst. Yeah. I well, gloated a little too soon there. That's not true. It's not the worst. No, I don't think it is. But I was right about we'll like it better than we think, at least, right? Yep. I liked it better than I thought I would. All I remembered coming into this book was how everybody hates it because of... The universalism. The universalism. with Is it Imrith? The is Escobar, Embeth, whatever his name Esbeth, is. Yeah. yeah. Escobar. Yeah. We'll just call him Escobar. Let's call him Escobar. Universalism that happens with Escobar. We're terrible people. <laughs> <laughs> we like this book. Um, a, I just can't remember his name. Embeth. Yeah, it didn't bother me as much. It's tacked on at the end and... Well, that's jumping ahead. I mean, do we want to talk about it now? I guess the major criticism that most Christians have of this book is that it is one of the places where it seems like Lewis is being the most explicitly universalist. What's you guys' take on that? He's being consistent with himself over the course of seven books and the rest of his entire oeuvre. I don't know why anybody's surprised by that. I'm definitely, let's see, I'm thinking about The Great Divorce, which, well, we can talk more about that if we want to, but... But Nathan, that was just a metaphor. That wasn't really supposed to be hell. In The Great Divorce? Yeah. Seems like it was a metaphor for heaven and hell. Yeah. Uh, That's the defense I've heard of it, and it makes no sense to me. Nonsensical. That was the metaphor. It was just supposed to get a truth of something. Yeah, that's Except that it wasn't. And also except that that's the point of a metaphor. Right, exactly. (laughs) If somebody doesn't understand how metaphors work, (laughs) then I guess that's a pretty good defense. All right, I don't want to talk about The Great Divorce. Positive energy, and I'm not just saying that because, you know, people have been a little unhappy with us trouncing the horse and his boy and such, but because I really did like this book. So why why don't we just get the bad stuff out of the way? Let's do it. Universalism. But in a cheerful way. But in a cheerful way. Um, Universalism is great. I'm persuaded. (laughs) That's not cheerful, Brandon. That's he called, convinced me. That's I called, gave in. That's called sarcasm, and it's a form of anger is what my mom always told oh, me. Oh, oh, this is the last of the books, the last battle. He won. He beat Brandon, and I went and I told a whole bunch of Muslims that I think they're going to heaven. Well, anything good you do is for Tash, and anything bad you do is... But as long as... Anything good you do is for Aslan. Anything yes, okay, sorry. Okay. sorry I'm the ones that die like that, yes. The ones that actually follow Tash get consumed by Tash, but the ones that... Follow... Act, that think they're following Tash, but are actually following Aslan by following Tash. The ones that it follow, It gets counted yeah. to them as following Aslan, even though they were following Tash. So have you guys seen the movie, The Breadwinner? Nope. This little cartoon movie? Oh, no, I'm familiar yeah, I with it. I remember that, yeah. but I, I never got around to watching it. Is it about an Iranian it's girl? It's great, great, and it's really sad, and it's about this family in Afghanistan, Afghanistan. under the, what's that awful, Taliban rule. Right. <laughs> And the Taliban would be the ones who follow Tash. Right. But this family, even though they follow Allah, they do it out of this sense of love for some greater power that then leads them into not being Taliban soldiers. Right. And so they would be the ones that Aslan would say, well, you did all your kindness and your goodness and your sacrifice for me, even though it was in the name of Allah. Do you guys think there's any argument to be made that C.S. Lewis wasn't making a theological point here? 
Um, no, there's no way to argue that C.S. Lewis was not making a theological point. C.S. Lewis created a character named Aslan that he made into a direct metaphor for Jesus. He's talking about heaven. He's building a metaphor for heaven. And now he's showing us literally the kinds of people that are in heaven. And he's giving us exposition from Aslan through this character about who is in heaven and who is not in this platonic heaven. Mm -hmm. So no, there's absolutely no way to argue that C.S. Lewis is not trying to make a theological point. He is trying to make a theological point. It's a bad one. It deserves to be spit out of the mouths of every Christian. And that's it, period. There's no way to, there's just no arguing of it. You can say that it's more or less harmful by being fictionalized, but you cannot say it's not a point. I mean, Lewis is very intentional about all of this stuff. He says so. He draws direct connections in this book. He draws connections to the things that we've been saying. He says it's all there in Plato. And Lewis also makes a habit of doing this exact sort of thing, right? He writes an essay called The Abolition of Man, and then he turns around and writes a fiction, a novel, where he says, I'm just trying to illustrate the principles of my essay, The Abolition of Man, so that it seeps better into everybody's hearts and gets past their defenses. This is his explanation of why he writes that hideous strength. It's to take his philosophy, fictionalize it so it gets better into people's hearts. What do you think he is doing here when he is doing inserting all this Platonism in this theology into his novels and even directly saying, what do they teach in these schools? It's all in Plato. He's doing that same thing. It's for him it's it's about teaching philosophy and to pretend like it's not about teaching philosophy is to not give Lewis the credit of being a smart intentional man that used words precisely which he was If there was ever anybody in the 20th century <laughs> that was... was smart intelligent and used words precisely it might have been CS Lewis like he is that brilliant of a writer he I mean, read his essays. Oh, read how there's not a word out of place. I how mean, it, it, every it, thought is so effortlessly clear and beautiful and perfect. But in the, but in this kind of a yes. way that takes forever to think through, to process, to well, yeah. like this guy is doing nothing lightly. Yeah, everything feels light, which is something that you achieve which by is thinking magic. really hard. You either have to be magic, right. or you have to be brilliant and incredibly hardworking. Right. Yep. It's one of my favorite. The weight of glory is one of my favorite essays. It's a wonderful teach. essay. It's a great essay to teach because mm-hmm. it tells you everything you need to learn about good writing that you'll never be able to. Well, do. And every paragraph <laughs> sets up the next paragraph perfectly, and yeah. then the next paragraph after that. It's just like. In terms of a series of interlocking thoughts with each metaphor, with each image, with each, with each idea, having the right place, being in the right order, one leading into another, it's just perfect. It's, 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 it's a diamond. It's a jewel. It's just like... Diamond in the rough. It, well, Just like Aladdin. Just like Aladdin. It's amazing. C.S. Lewis did not ever have an idea out of place if something's there. And in this book, he's most explicit about like, Aslan's Jesus. You know, in our world, there's a manger where it's small, but something really big was inside of it. That our universe couldn't contain. Yeah, and the last paragraph says, Aslan suddenly turned into something else, and England was also there. Yeah, and so... We're actually, getting the bad stuff out of the way early, folks. I actually had some hope mm-hmm. early in the novel that we had all just misremembered and that it actually wasn't that bad, mm-hmm. because you have the Tash is Aslan, Aslan is Tash crud, in the mouth of the ape. And in the mouth and of the, the bad lives. guys, right? And, and, like, and, you and kept Lewis wants to make like, it clear that that's nonsense. Like, right, yeah. You kept feeling like, hey, you know, this is him 
sort of yeah. mitigating against the kind of paganism that we see him wanting to pull in. He wants to draw a distinction here. Mm-hmm. He wants to point out that Aslan, Aslan and Tash are not actually the same. There's only one. And to worship the one isn't to worship the other. Except, And, and Aslan even gets mad when the the Tashmanian guy, whatever his name is, what did we decide? What's Escobar's name? Embeth? Escobar. Escobar. When Escobar says, are you really Tash? Aslan's angry at the people that put forward that idea. How is Lewis able to hold both things? What do you think he's getting well, at with the one? what he's trying to allow for. He's trying to say that, because there, the other important thing that Aslan says is that every bad thing someone does in my name mm-hmm. is done in the name of Tash, basically. So Tash is a satanic figure, a demonic figure. They, they make that very clear that they, if you ask for a demon, be careful, you might get one, right? right? And that's yep. said again and again throughout the book. And so he's saying that even though they don't realize it, and even in, if, if with their minds they're worshiping this Tash figure, if their motives are pure, then actually they're, wor- they're worshiping Aslan. It's weird. On the one hand, he wants to see the pagan gods as stepping stones, as really small bad pictures that we're building towards. What he also wants to do is to draw a distinction, though, in terms of moral absolutes. If you can look through the gods and see the glimmers of truth, cling to the glimmers of truth, the shadows of the good things, then... Great. Yay, great. And if not, if you're corrupted by it, then you're corrupt. There's a strange... So Lewis was okay with mystery to an extent. Mm-hmm. I mean, he that's kind of... All, he reveled in it. There was a extent. Gnosticism to... Yeah. But in the end, he really wasn't okay with the ultimate mystery that the only way to be reconciled to God is through Christ. Right. There is no other way. And that's what scripture tells us over and over again. And that made him him uncomfortable like it does a lot of intellectuals. But the way that he tried to reconcile it was to say, everyone who's a good person mm-hmm. is therefore reconciled through Christ. He he wanted to like hold the exclusivity in one hand. Yeah. But make it implicit. That's the whole point is to make it implicit. Nobody comes through the door except by Aslan. They can be mistaken about how they get through the door. They can be confused. They can think they hate Aslan, but if they love Aslan's law, then they love Aslan, even if they've never heard the name Aslan or... Which, I mean, that matches what I saw. I read Mere Christianity and some of his other essays. And though he's really strong on certain aspects of sin, like temptation, we saw, and this is something we saw in Surprised by Joy as well, which everybody gets mad at us for holding this one thing against Lewis. But in the end, he has a really, he, he has a bad, underdeveloped view of sin mm-hmm. in the fall. And what happened to us at the fall? Because he thinks that a guy like Escobar could possibly be good enough to please Aslan. That's ultimately what he's suggesting. And I'm sure there's somebody out there that's going to come with their deep neoplatonic explanation as to why actually that's not what Lewis is saying. But this is a children's book, and this is what children are going to take away from it. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if if he's saying you still have to come by the grace of Aslan, that grace is credited to you on the basis of... Essentially, you're a good person. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. And that's that's the issue, and that's what this is showing children, and that's the big problem with this book. I mean, I see why that's you can the big... bow to the demon, right? You can worship in the demon's temple, but if you if you are a good enough person who loves good things, who loves truth, beauty, and goodness, that is what it means to love Aslan, and therefore that is what it means to love Jesus, and therefore you are coming to God, no matter who you think you're coming to and you will be saved and covered and have the grace of 
God or the grace of Aslan given to you on the basis of the fact that <coughs> you're a good person who loves truth, good goodness, and beauty. I mean, it would have been different had this character had to face Aslan and Aslan had said, you know, all these times you were looking at the demon, this is what you're, I was calling you, but you still didn't even have the ability to see me. Right. And then he like scratches him like he does that Aravis or whatever. Right. And then the guy has to tremble and be afraid. As long as it's on the other side of the door, otherwise we're talking about purgatory. Yeah. Well, we get into all sorts of What weird. I was thinking is if you really wanted to do this character, it would be a great thief on the cross kind of thing. You could mm -hmm. have this guy who's been a seeker his whole life. He gets a little chance before he goes through that door and takes it. And we get to see that even somebody like that can be snatched that served a demon. Yeah, that would have been better. Right. Us. But what we're offered here is that, so like a graduate school or even as an undergraduate, one of the things people always throw you at throw at you is like, well, what about the heathens in the in New Guinea who never mm -hmm. had a chance to hear about Christ? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what, but what if those heathens in New Guinea are better people than you? Exactly, and that's what he's dealing with here. That's all he's... That is what he's doing. He's, that's, that's the question that he's answering. Yeah. This person grew up not in Aslan's country. Right, but the Apostle Paul already answered that question in Romans 1. He says, what can be known about God is evident to them from the things that have been created. We have enough, and this and is, we have enough later, knowledge of God. How can they believe unless they've heard, and how can they hear without a preacher? Exactly, yeah. And right. So that's Lewis's bad application of Romans right. 1. He's like saying, well, this guy did see in a way. But he that again comes to his shallow view of sin and the holiness of God. You know, what Lewis wants to say, the principle is actually true. You cannot love God's law without loving God. Problem is, what does it mean to love God's law really? Mm -hmm. And your ordinary good person on the streets who's a pagan, he may love a lot of good things. He may desire to see justice, but does he really love the law of God in the inward parts in the way that God calls and requires him to. Well, you can't separate that from the love of the one true God himself. The answer is no, of course not. None of us actually do. And the love of the law that we have and the love of goodness and truth and beauty for that matter, it has to be born by the, in our hearts by the spirit of God. Right. And even that's not what saves us. It's the righteousness of Jesus that saves us. And that's only a, applied to those who believe and call on the name of Jesus. And you cannot believe and call on the name of Satan and love some good things. A lot of Satanists are, literal Satanists, are very concerned about being people. moral people. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, the Church of Satan is very anti-anybody seeing them as being evil and... Well, a documentary just came out about the yeah. Church of Satan with interviews with all these people. And the point of the documentary, the thing that you walk away with is how lovable they are yeah, and how pleasure kind and... they are and how, how much they care about social issues and care about their fellow man. I'm sure they do. But all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Yeah. I mean, whatever but... is not of faith is sin. Right. You can see his shallow view of sin in other places, such as the fact that Susan, of all of them, is the one who doesn't make it. Mm -hmm. And what she's condemned for is liking makeup and wanting to grow Nylon. up. Nylon. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what... That is a good line. It is a good line. The, the line of, she spent all her time rushing to the silliest part of her life and will spend the rest of her life trying to stay there. That's a great line. Well, what I keep yeah. thinking about all of this is C.S. Lewis always has people's number on the earthly side of things. It's where he yeah. starts to deal in eternal things that he always messes it up. Well, but it's... but even the, the Tash thing, you can make some broad applications. I mean, we all know it's people the... who have a 
warped or mutilated view of of God and yet and yet still serve him if you know what I mean like I'm not talking about people who literally worship another god but you know you want to know the thief on the cross example in this whole thing is puzzle yeah that's the closest thing we yeah. get to the thief on the cross so I don't know what you said that made me think that I hope I didn't derail your point. No, I don't think. My, my point was only, I think we all know people in our churches or in our families who do call on the name of Jesus, do have a very simple understanding, maybe a even a wrong understanding, but and it's not for us to judge ultimately whether they're saved, but I think we'd like to think that they are. You know, there, you know? Well, yeah, and there is a sense in which we want to be generous. I think that there are there are people who belong to the heretical Roman Catholic Church that have a simple faith in Jesus. I think there may be people in the Mormon cult that have a simple faith in Jesus. And, and there's a, there's an earthly small sense in which you could say those people might be at times in their lives calling on demons and God might be not accounting that to them as faith, but he might have saved them. He might have elected them to salvation. And, and I think Lewis does maybe get at that a little bit. But, yeah, that's certainly what he's trying to get at. Right. It, he's trying to get at how can you be, he, he who's not for me is against me and he who's against me cannot be for me kind of thing, right? Right. Like, and there is something to that, except also you really do have to believe on Jesus. And if you've not heard of him, right, you can't believe in him. And if you can't call on his name, that's it. You're damned. I mean, that's it. It's, mm-hmm. it's very simple. And we do through general revelation have enough information to be damned. We understand enough of God that those islanders in you know, those people in the deepest heart of Africa that the gospel has never re- reached, they will go to hell because they have enough. I mean, it's just what the apostle, I'm sorry if nobody like if somebody's listening and doesn't like that, but that's just what the apostle Paul says in Romans 1. Otherwise, why do we send missionaries? Right. That's why we send them. But we've spent all our tom- time talking about the most obviously bad things that probably the vast majority of our listeners agree is bad about well, yeah. Have we said it on mic yet that this is the one book that everybody agrees they cannot like? Yeah, it's yeah. kind of it's kind of funny. And so we're gonna we're about to mount a rousing defense for the book. I yeah. Think. Let's just. Is there anything else we want to clear up as far as the bad stuff? Well, I was trying to say earlier that I think with the nylons and stuff, what you do see with C.S. Lewis is he has a very, it's a very British, very polite society view of sin mm-hmm. and the things that he's willing to call out. And right. so Susan is the bad guy. Does well, make, uh, the thing does that, this make sense? It does. And so and so yet, pederasty somehow doesn't. Well, that's what I'm thinking, and I'm sorry yeah. to bring it up again, folks. But this is he a, said it though, like it or not, he said it. So he has all these like nice British sins that he's able to not that he's able to hate from his stuffy Oxford Don's room, mm-hmm. and yet when it comes to the real weighty stuff like pederasty and stuff, he's not willing to look it in the face. I don't think there's much more to say about it other than it just goes to show what we were saying about his unwillingness to look depravity in the face. Yeah. I have a little bit more to say about the Susan thing, but I think I'm going to save it for later because it's not really related to that particular point. And it'll be a suspenseful thing. What else does Nathan have to say about the Susan thing? We'll get there. You're in love with her. Yeah. She's great. Yeah. I love those nylons. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a married man, Brennan. Um... So the praise. No, not yet. I just want to say, I really like that this book has a big obvious flaw in it. It's really helpful, actually. And I'm not exactly patting Lewis on the back, but I am saying it's really nice, just as happenstance, since it happens to have this. I think it's really cool that 
kids read six books and then they come to the seventh and it has this big obvious problem that even they can understand and you can kind of talk through them. And yeah. It's not, it's nothing so sophisticated as some of the other thing, you know, the Bacchus thing or some of the other big problems we've had. Well, I think it's to bring the guy I always bring into conversations, Tolstoy in. Mm-hmm. It's the difference between Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky is over there pretending that he's a Christian to me mm-hmm. and I'm always suspicious of it. But at least Tolstoy just has the dignity of just being, having a huge flaw right at the end of Anna Karenina. Right. And you're just like, okay. But the rest of it's great. Right. Well, and it's just, you can use the, this is a great teaching tool. It's like, here's no, a great- No, Brandon, you don't love Anna Karenina because you took issue with how it ended. Oh. Why are you so hard on Tolstoy? Because Why he do you hate a, Tolstoy, Brandon? Because he was a pagan and the ending to that book smells. Why do you hate smells. him? So I just think it's really nice. I think it's really handy. I'm not appreciative of Lewis for doing it exactly, but I just love the fact that after six books of wisdom and kids learning to really trust this guy, you suddenly just get a big honking flaw that you need to be like, oh yeah, kids, you need to have discernment. Even when you're reading C.S. Lewis. It, well, it's it, better than having the weird sort of not obvious flaws, like the sacrificial stuff that happens in Chronicles or the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm-hmm. Or the orgasmic dances with Bacchus that happen in Prince Caspian. Right. Where then it's really difficult to explain to a child, well, why is this bad? Well, because well, here's, here's who Bacchus is, guys. Let daddy tell you <laughs> who Bacchus is. I didn't mean to have the talk with you, even though you're seven. <laughs> right. Here's why Bacchus is so bad. Or here's why the multiple lions and the horse and his boy is so cheap. Mm-hmm. Because then we're getting into the, I mean, nobody wants that. Apparently nobody wanted that argument. Nope. It's just because it's bad. Right. It's yeah. bad literature. Yep. Just bad. I mean, if if Paul, if not Paul, if John Bunyan had tried to pull that trick on us. <laughs> Paul, Paul Bunyan. Yeah, Paul, <laughs> if Paul, Paul Bunyan. If Babe the Big, big Blue Ox had been at the typewriter. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. See, people? <laughs> See? We can he, laugh at ourselves. Even Somebody's Green Men gonna are put that up. Yeah. to put that up in a review. Yeah. <laughs> he said, he said Paul, Paul Bunyan Paul wrote Bunyan. Pilgrim's Progress <laughs> as if these guys are... <laughs> You know, that's how credible they are. Have they so, re- read Pilgrim's Progress? <laughs> so, Jake, by this time, a video will have dropped for our Behind the Paywall people where you give a little bit of a ap- apologia for our take on Lewis. And But I feel like enough angst is creeping into this episode. Maybe we should talk about it with the regular listeners. But I promised that to be exclusive for our paywall. Just give them a taste. Just give them a taste. A teaspoon. A okay, teaspoon. I'll give you... Because obviously we feel some angst about the fact that we've said bad things about Lewis. People have not responded with happiness. Here's your spoonful of sugar. The problem with a children's book is that it is very simple. We have said over and over again in these episodes and in other places that we love these books and we love C.S. Lewis, actually. Nobody can or wants to hear that. But here's the problem. Try talking about what you love about one of these books about these books for seven hours. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's super simple. You love them because they're great stories and they're fun. The end. Right. That's it. What else are you going to say about it? What else is interesting to talk about? You know what's interesting to talk about? The bad stuff. The stuff where there's conflict, where you disagree, where you have a problem, where C.S. Lewis's weirdness, which is ubiquitous, crops up in all of these books. Do we talk more about Peter, who's basically perfect? Or do we talk more about Edmund, who had some flaws? When children's literature is and must be simple, Mm -hmm. the great things about it are all going to be simple, and there's not much to say. 
So, of course, we're going to spend more time teasing out and talking through what's bad. Do we believe that what's bad is out, out, out outweighed by what's good? Well, how many of these episodes, how many of these books have we given five, six, seven lampposts out of seven? Uh, all of them, right? So, come on, people, please, please. That's right. We like give us space to guy. talk about and to tease out what is actually bad here. Which leads into the second point, which is, man. If you cannot look at the things that you love with a critical eye and see what's bad about them, if you think that love must be blind, you don't have a mature view of love. You don't understand love. If you can't look at your lover, your husband, your wife, your children, and see their sins and flaws, you are a bad lover. You are a bad mother and father. And if you love your books so much that you can't hear criticism about them, you're an idolater. That's it. That's all. Guess what? There's no such thing as a book that does not have flaws. It doesn't matter if it's in the canon. It doesn't matter if it's written by Austin or Lewis or Tolstoy or Shakespeare. It doesn't matter. It is flawed. It has problems. Those problems are worth talking about. Part of the point of this show is for us, literature lovers, the three of us in this room and you guys, to be able to come together and say, hey, we love books, sometimes a little too much. Let's put it in its proper place. Let's together look at these great things that we love with a critical eye, with some discernment and bring some Christian discernment to it because nothing is above scrutiny. That's it. That's all we do. That's what we try to do. And if you cannot believe that we can look at these books, we can love them while being critical of them. You don't understand us. You don't understand this show and you don't understand love. That's it. Amen. (laughs) Amen, Jake. (laughs) The book ending today. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, honestly, how you will you will destroy your children and you will destroy your marriage if you think that you must be blind to the sins of your husband and wife and to the sins of your children. And if you elevate these books to the level that you cannot be critical of them and you're afraid that being critical of them is going to rob you of the ability to love them, how shallow, how immature is your understanding of love. God looks at you. Can you look in the mirror and see your own sin? Can you look at yourself and deal with the fact that you are a sinner before a holy God? God looks at you and all of your sin. He sees it all and he still loves you. And yeah, he sees you through the lens of, uh, of the perfect righteousness of Christ if you put your faith in him. But that doesn't change the fact that he, he still sees and does it. Yeah, on the one hand, he forgets it. On the other hand, he sees it. He disciplines you for it. He loves you in spite of it. That's the beauty of the glory of the grace of God. Guess what? Christians are to do the same thing. We can look at things like this. We can see the flaws. We can see the sins. And then we can say, you know what? We still love it despite all of those things. But there are some things to be concerned about. Well, and by the way, how immature, how insecure, there's a certain kind of person that says, if I admit that there is a flaw with my child, then I, I, I will have to be done with my child. You know, I have to love my wife, don't I? So how can I admit to a flaw about my wife? If once, if once I've pulled on the thread of there being a problem with Narnia, I'm going to have to throw out Narnia. How about you just are aware of the flaws and still read Narnia? Live you with know? attention. Live with attention. But see, that's the thing. The Nobody real, wants the, to live the, with the, attention. The, the real issue is that you don't, you don't have faith to look at your own sin and your own flaws. That's really what's at issue here. What you think is you've got to present to the world as perfect. And if somebody sees 
your flaws and sins and sees you for what you are, then you will be unlovable to them. And so that's the way that you treat everything else in your life. And that's just man. Must grow, be a way to live. Grow it's so mature. up. Yeah. It's so mature. Grow up. If you can't hear us say that we love these books, that we read them to our children and that our children read them, that they were special for us when we were children, that Brandon has one son named Elliot Lewis and another son named Jack, what? that my first two kids' names are Peter and Lucy, then you know what? I'm sorry. And yes, his name is Elliot before the Lewis. Get over it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, There's man. an alternative, Nathan. What's that? You just ask us a lot of questions that are kind of vague mm-hmm. and get us to talk about how wonderful the allusions to Plato are. That's not helpful. Everybody knows. I mean, not everybody knows about Plato, but everybody has read these no, books. They no, know what's good about no, them. And here's the other thing. Here's the other thing that I want to say. Mm-hmm. You should be able, and here's maybe a really good test of everything that we're talking about. Can you listen to us? Can you hear what we have to say? Can you let us challenge your thoughts? Can you decide to disagree with us? And can you still love us? Are you mature enough for that? If you're not, if what you do is go all petty because you've heard us challenge you and say some things that have challenged you in your way of looking at the world and at the things that you love and you can't help yourself but but go all petty on us, then guess what? We are talking to you. We are You are the person we are challenging and we are challenging you to grow up mature in your understanding of love. You are so proud and so insular that you can only handle validation from your entertainment, from your podcasts, from your education. There's nothing for you here. Well, there's lots for you here, but you're you're like the dwarf sitting in the stable. You're unwilling to see it. <laughs> well, I think it's true, actually. <laughs> it's a good metaphor. It's a good actually. metaphor. <laughs> here we are giving you all sorts of wonderful British foods, puddings, and meats, mm. and you just think it's hay and manure. Well, and okay, all right. As long as we're talking about it, let's keep talking about it. I know we can be a little snarky. I know in particular, you know, I led this show off with like a little thing where I was making fun of the fact that we make fun of Lewis and everything. And I know that can be annoying and everything. But I mean, believe that I believe I'm actually being helpful to you. There's actually a point to the silliness at the top of a show like this. And the point is books just aren't that important. Let's not make idols out of them. They're just these silly little things that can be helpful, that can be good, that can be edifying. And listen, we understand that the reason you listen to a show like this is because you love love them. You love literature. You love stories. They've had a special place in your life. But you may not make an idol out of it. It's deeply personal. Somehow or another, as a kid, you connected with that one book that turned you into a lifetime literature lover. Yeah. Somebody got you. Somebody understood you. Somebody helped you escape from something. Whatever it was, you were understood in a way that you were never understood before because your mommy didn't love you. You got to escape from a situation that was bad because your parents beat you or abused you, whatever it is, or you were just a normal, healthy person that got caught up in great stories. Yeah. Whatever it is, it's personal. We get it. We've all been there. Yeah. That's why we're doing the show, because we love this stuff. Because it meant something to us. Because I was lonely and I was sad and C.S. Lewis was there for me. He really was. But that doesn't mean I worship at the altar of C.S. Lewis for the rest of my life. And actually in the end, given... Or at the altar of books. Right. That's right. And in the end, I think given the way the story goes, 
I don't think I think C.S. Lewis would be on board with us. Oh yeah, that's like all these books, all these stories that you guys take so seriously. They're just a shadow of what's to come. That is the great irony of everything that we've had to deal with in terms of people being disappointed with us for not just validating the Lewis stuff is I think Lewis would really, I mean, I'm sorry if this sounds high handed. I really think Lewis would be on our side because he'd just be like, why are you people taking me so seriously? At least he'd be willing to, from everything I've read about him, would be willing to argue fiercely with us and happily. Y'all need to take a page out of the playbook of Jay and Katie who are cold and love cheese and C.S. Lewis, including Until We Have Faces. Right. Yeah. We we hate Until We Have Faces. They've been great about all this. They don't seem to be threatened by that fact. I think they appreciate being pushed and challenged and they disagree. And And Jay gets as good as he gets. Yeah. Wonderful. You can have a different opinion. That's, That's the thing. I mean, people, I don't want to turn everything into subjective mush, but it's like, People listen to this and they're like, oh no, they said something that was different than what I said. Oh, whatever shall I do? Eat breakfast? Move, move on with your life? Go to work? <laughs> Kiss your wife? I don't know. There's, there's all kinds of things you can do. Read the horse and his boy yeah. again for all I care. <sighs> well. 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 <laughs> Last battle's great. Last battle is great. And now that we've... It was really enjoyable to read and I found it really compelling and I had a lot of fun with it. And I think... In the process of reading the book, I sort of, okay, after The Horse and His Boy, Mm -hmm. I was dreading having to finish this series. I think I said on the the show, I would rather go back and read all seven Harry Potter books. Yeah, we did. Now, Jake, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Do you look down on people that like The Horse and His Boy? Do you think if somebody doesn't like The Horse and the Boy... Or does like it? They're just an idiot that doesn't understand life and and should just curl up and die, or or just throw Narnia into the fire altogether because they like the horse and his boy. Well, of course. Okay, just, well, just checking. That's what yeah. I think too. Okay, good. Me too. Yeah, maybe not the curl no, up you know and what? die part. I think absolutely curl up and die. Oh, what well. else is for you? I think part of what we have to just keep saying over and over again is that even the way that we're hitting these books now. Some of it's just a function of familiarity. Right. Right. Like as a kid, I would have I would have always said the last battle and the magician magician's nephew are my two least favorite books. The two books that I'm least familiar with. Well, I think we were talking off Mike, what's 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 the most fun Indiana Jones movie to watch now? For my money, it's Temple of Doom. And Temple of Doom, everybody agrees it's a stinker compared to the others. Well, at least the other two in the original trilogy. But I haven't seen it a million times. Exactly. It's new. It's like, oh, young Harrison Ford is starring in a kind of new movie that's fresh to me. This is fun. You right. know, it's, it's not well trod. Right. Right. In the same way that the I know that every beat are. of Raiders of the Lost Ark and Last Crusade. I know every joke. I've laughed at them a million times. I've been thrilled by the thrills. Like those movies have kind of served and, their purpose in my life. And so Temple of Doom represents some something of real interest. It's just not as well worn of a path. Right. And, and I, it's I think that we've substantially got same... uh, worse than the other two, objectively speaking. But yeah. And I think that we've got the same effect happening for us working through. Like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it was a slog. Mm-hmm. It's That's because it's the one that we're all most familiar with and we've read the most times, right? right? Caspian's overlooked, so we had a little more fun with it. Then you come to Don Treader, and I just think it's fun. Yeah, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed that one. Silver Chair's next. You hit Silver Chair. Mm-hmm. That's good, but you're starting to get Narnia fatigue starting to settle in. Then the horse and his boy just doesn't have that much to offer at that point. Right. But then you come to uh, Magician's Nephew and the Last Battle. So, but they're they're both just very different. They're both out of left field compared to everything that came before them. 
you know, what's interesting about the magician's nephew is suddenly it's all new characters and it starts in our world and we come back to our world and this world between the worlds Mm. and there's this like creation story and you get all this backstory of all this stuff, you know, this foundation is laid and that's fun and interesting. And then you come to the last battle and suddenly everything is terrible. You're fighting a losing battle and what exactly is going on here? And as a kid, the tension of, of the ape in that stuff, I think might drive you crazy. But as an adult, it's dark and it's interesting and it's different. And it's, um, well, actually I thought we might do a fun exercise today. What genre outside of fantasy would you classify each Narnia book as? Because I submit to you, this this is my theory. Each one will probably, some of them might class in the same genre, but I bet we'll, we'll actually figure out that they're different genres. Silver Chairs Horror and... Right, Silver Chairs Horror. So let's just rely on the Witch in the Wardrobe. I guess that's Quest, that's Adventure, that's just... Adventure is good, yeah. yeah. let's call that Adventure. Prince Caspian, not so much, though. That's like battle, it's political yeah, intrigue. It's like a war. It's, you know, it's almost West Wing for a second there. It's... Uh, West Wing. <laughs> well, it's just political, you like know. Like to it's, see Aaron Sorkin script this. <laughs> right. <laughs> Miraz and his aides are walking down the hall yeah. and everything. Uh, <laughs> Caspian, and that I guess we could say that's adventure, but it's almost. You mean Don Treader? Or sorry, Don Treader. It's voyage, it's journey. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's quest. It's, yeah, it's undiscovered quest. country kind of quest, though. It's exploration. It's a different kind of like if if the first if if a wardrobe is like a high fantasy quest, this is more like a a fantasy journey. Like wardrobe is good versus evil. Caspian is good versus evil in a more political kind of realistic context, and then Voyage of the Don Treader actually isn't. Good versus evil. There's good versus evil. Little else. No, it's what's beyond the horizon. Right. It is a grail quest. Yeah. 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 It's a grail quest. There you go. Perfect. Uh, Silver chair is just horror. horror. I mean, it's claustrophobia. It's darkness. It's super creepy villain. It's Lovecraftian under things. The lurkers on the threshold kind of stuff. And then horse and his boy is trash. Zing! <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. No, the horse and his boy is. Uh, oh, I don't know. What do you want to say? Well, it's, it is a different kind of quest. I think that the quest is something that Lewis does come back to, and maybe that's part of why horse and his boy feels tired. Is it's that it's something more of a retread in terms of genre? Yeah. It's a little bit Bildungsroman. Yeah, it's. I was gonna say it's a. It's, it's a, a uh, coming of age. Coming of yeah. age, and also a uh, little prince and his pauper kind of uh, body swap. It's almost kind of, uh, parable-ish. Yeah. So, and then you got magician's nephew, which for large chunks is just kind of a weird domestic slapstick uh, French farce story. kind of yeah. comedy with people. You know, that whole middle act is like a drawing room comedy. Yeah, uh, and then the first act is just like weird, mystical, almost horror, fantasy kind of stuff. And the, I don't know what you'd say. I guess the third act is another quest, the creation story. Yeah, it's well, you got the creation story, and then you have the quest. But you have the quest for the apple, and yeah. that may be why the quest was actually the least interesting part of that book for me. Although I didn't mind it because it had already been done. We've had so many quests, and that one felt fairly perfunctory compared to some of the better Narnia quests. Yep. And <clears throat> we have this book, and I don't know how would you quest. This is not a quest. This is no. This is like apocalyptic. A, it's apocalyptic, dystopian, dystopian. Yeah, it's kind of dystopian. More of a drama. Yeah, it's more of a drama, actually. Yeah, everything's closing in around you, and you've got to decide. At, at a certain point, it's not: Are we going to die? It's: Are we going to die valiantly? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And that poor bear. Yeah. He's so confused. Yeah. So Why? sad. Why? 
<laughs> I wonder if it was Boltitude. <laughs> what else was there to say about this book? So you got Shift. Let's just go through it here real quick. You got Shift and Puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. Anything to say about them? Shift is another, it's another instance maybe of Lewis as, Lewis's villains as, Lewis not giving his villains dignity. Shift is basically a con artist, uh, a Duke and a King kind of character. And their yeah. relationship is very Abbott and Costello. It's like, there's there's nothing, you know, I've read, I read Left Behind when I was a kid. It's, that that trash was popular back then. It reminded then. me a lot of just sort of like Shakespearean yes. kind of. Yes. Like everything about it was. It's the smart it so character the and the top. dumb yeah, character. It's the smart character and the dumb character. And the dumb character is so dumb that it's comical how over the top, you know, the mani- manipulations are. Right. But it's, they're clever still. Right. Well, that's the kind of section where you kind of have to, you know, your critical brain might be like, this is not amusing me all that much. But then you're like, but kids probably think this is really funny and that's who it's intended for. It's a little broad for my tastes, but that's not a criticism so much as a observation that i am an adult and not the intended audience for this thing a grown mature man i'm a grown mature man brandon that's absolutely right so you got them and then you got Tyrion. how does he stack against here's of heroes i like him yeah i like him quite a bit what do you like about him he has some real faith and a lot less proof to go on and i like the fact that he's a little impetuous but i mean that even the places where he's impetuous come from some pretty righteous places. From zeal and, and from zeal righteous for the right zeal. things. Yeah. yeah, zeal for the right things. He's zealous about seeing Aslan. He's he's willing to throw, and he's got his buddy, the My Little Pony character, mm-hmm. Jewel, Jewel, Jewel the Unicorn. Jewel, Jewel the Unicorn, yeah. <laughs> it's a little, I don't know, Just man. name him something more dignified. That's, that's know, all we really man. need. Like Rambo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ram, name him Rambo, yeah. There you go, problem solved. But, but <laughs> Dig a tunnel and set booby traps <laughs> for all the Kalamrins. But- what I love about Lewis when it comes to battle and kings mm. over and over and over again, what makes a king is a man who's willing to put himself on the front lines. Yeah. That's what makes him worthy to be king. If he's not willing to put himself on the front lines for his people, he's not a good king. Tyrion would have been wise to listen to his centaur friend or whoever it was. And Lewis says that. But at the same time, you have to admire the guy that's like, no, they're killing my people. You go, you get the reinforcements. I'm getting there as quick as I can. Right. And it may have been foolish, and it was. I mean, Lewis tells us it was, but... But at the same time, better to be, don't hear what I'm not saying, but better to be a zealous fool in a righteous cause mm-hmm. than to be a cautious coward in your wisdom. I don't... Well, we've met these people, right? Young men, they tend to come to our church, they gravitate here because we teach on things like biblical sexuality and stuff that maybe people aren't hearing. And so they suddenly get excited and they get fired up and then they, you know, they go to the other college student and and do something stupid and give them a big speech and... Yeah, they cause problems. It's out of misplaced zeal. Yeah, and what you don't do as a pastor in that situation is try to kill the zeal. Right. The zeal needs to be tempered by wisdom, but a lot of people just want to kill it, and that's bad. Well, it's so easy to say, "How dare you not wait for reinforcements, you idiot!" Yes, and it's like, yeah, but you've got here, you've got a young king, twenty-five years old. Lewis says he's young. He's got enough experience to know his way about battle, but he's never faced anything like this before. Right, and you love him for it. 
And what I was waiting for and trying to remember is, you know, he rushes in, he gets there, and then he sees these calamines whipping and driving his subjects, and he loses it. And they kill these men. That was weird because he killed he kills the crap out of those guys. Lewis explicitly tells you it was to cause many problems later, and so you kind of, if you know the Narnia formula, expect Aslan, Aslan to give him a speech. Him, right? It's going to be a problem. There's going to be some shame attached to this later on when they come into Aslan's. There's going to yeah. be something. And not only like, does that not happen, they, they but, say they call themselves murderers, right? right? They say we killed the these men in cold blood. We were overwhelmed they prepared, and overcome. Yeah. They weren't prepared. We didn't give them a chance to look us in the eye and draw their swords. That was cowardly and wrong. I'm not worthy to be called king of Narnia. I forfeit the crown. They go back and turn themselves in. That's how guilt ashamed they are of themselves. Right. Like they're on their way to meet up with their friends, with, with the army that's coming. And instead they go back and they turn themselves in. And just that's how... How about it? And then that's never dealt with later on. And that's pretty. Yeah, that was interesting, especially comparing it to the recent Aravis in escaping from this awful thing, got a servant girl whipped. Yeah. And she's not only going to be shamed for it. She's going to be like. Scratched by lion claws. Scratched, scratched by lion claws. And you have a number of instances of that. Not not corporal punishment necessarily, but just of Aslan disciplining people very, very, so here he doesn't very explicitly. Well, so, for well, so, I mean, he sees this. He sees Narnia collapse. Well, yeah, that's what I was about to say is, you know, but even it's not, it's it's pretty unlike Lewis to not give any exposition about it. Like to not have Aslan come and say, you, if you you, just to not, not, have, to that, not have that scene and to have Tyrion be like, yeah, I'm sorry, I accept whatever discipline you give me. And he says, my son, the discipline of being the last king of Narnia, of fighting the last battle, of losing it, and then watching Narnia be destroyed, that was your discipline. Yeah, like, but- if there was a way, I mean, like you could spin it that way. You could say that that was the discipline, but it, even that, it's unlike Lewis to not. Yeah, it's it's. If that was what he intended, it's unlike Lewis to. He leaves it ambivalent. Well, it's what I, it's what I was seeing in the magician's nephew, and I liked it that it's here too. And I can chalk it up to one of two things: one, Lewis is growing lazy with these stories, or two, he's maturing in his storytelling. And I like to think it's the second option because, like in the magician's nephew. If it was early Lewis with his cheap analogies with Jesus and, or the allegory with Jesus and Aslan, Aslan would have stopped after his singing and then he would have looked at the kids and said, it is good. Right. <laughs> or something like that, you know? It, it, he doesn't. Instead, you just see a creation, a weird little creation story happen and you know it's his voice and all that if you want to draw the parallels, but it's still not explicit like he would have done in other books. And here, I like it that he gives you that one line. Bad things, would, a lot of harm or whatever he says would happen because of this. Right. And then you just watch the bad stuff happen, but he doesn't tell you that it's explicitly happening because of that. Yeah. No, and he doesn't <clears throat> even, he lets you, I mean, and again, this is putting, and I think rightly putting the good spin on this, but he lets you decide. Like what was, was it just that he got tied up? And... Was he, was Tyrion right? Yeah. Like. Mm-hmm. Is this a, is this a, given everything that's happened, is this a, is this an excusable thing? He lets you ask that question. He lets you get to the point and say, wait a minute, his, the tree, the trees, the sacred wood, the naiads and dryads are being slaughtered. They watched one fall in front of his eyes. He's already going. He gets there and he sees the carnage and he sees the calories driving these horses 
And he has no idea. It's never even occurred to him that these horses that are being driven and put in service of all of this carnage are his own subjects. And the instant that that happens, he sees red. Like, you have slaughtered my people and you are enslaving my people and you will die. Well, and then him and Jewel kind of repent of it. But then it kind of feels like the rest of the book, oh, I don't want to say it negates their repentance, but it's like war is so ugly in this book. You know, the slaughter, he, he's going to put the knife against the guy and say, you're going to die if you don't take me in there. Jill is going to fight and kill. more. We have more record of her killing people than I think maybe anyone else in the book, which is something that has never happened. You know, we're gone from the first book where it's ugly when women fight to Jill. Well, we see it. Yeah. It is the ugliest battle. And that's when we see. And everyone's going to, the bear is going to die. And he's, we're, we're going to have death depicted in a way that we haven't seen before that I can think of. In but it's not, and it's not feminism. I mean, though. we have heads lopped off in Caspian and we have that kind but that's of always thing cool. happening over and we, over. We've never seen a, a good guy just bite it. And there's Aslan's not right. there to mourn and bring them back to life or anything. Lucy's not there with her vial. Yeah. Right. The, the bear is just, he's dead and it's sad. And we don't know in the moment that we're going to go to heaven and bring him back. He's just, he laid down and he never moved again. It's terrible. It's. And he asks why. <laughs> right. And he asks why. It's really well, sad. <laughs> and, and then we see, uh, we also end up seeing Jewel die. And, and before we go into the battle, we have this moment of love between Jewel and Tyrion where they're, all right, this is it. Best friends to the end, best friends. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't change anything. Yeah, that was great. That was like the lethal weapon moment. And and then, you know, we're in battle and everybody's falling after. Right. <laughs> Jill's getting dragged off by her hair. <laughs> Jill's getting dragged off and by her hair. Eustace has already been chucked into the Jewel demon hut. Yeah. Um, Eustace is thrown in there. And then eventually Tyrion has his moment where he's like, you know, he's so lost in battle that he forgets about, I love the whole thing. Here he's this experience. He's the most experienced warrior left standing on the field. And in the heat of the battle, he has this vague idea that the shed is maybe bad and that he is being moved away from his position, but he's so caught in the battle and taking the opportunities that he has to stay alive and strike back that it's never occurred to him until it's too late that he's been backed up into the corner. Then he has his moment where he's like, all right, fine. If I'm going in there, I'm you're taking the Tarkin me. with me. Yeah, right. <laughs> you're going. If I'm going in there, you're coming with me. This really is the most right? lethal weapon of the. <laughs> you want to see Tash? Let's see Tash. <laughs> Get off my Narnia. <laughs> awesome. It's pretty great. It's pretty great. Yeah. And <clears throat> the only thing that's regrettable to me about that whole thing is they all get spared death. Mm-hmm. Do they? Yes. I mean, I thought that Jill probably died. No, they all died, but they died without dying. Oh, yeah. Nobody felt any pain, including the people in the train wreck. It was just right. like, well, I felt a bit of a jolt, and then... Then, boom, I was here. Yeah, that was lame. In fact, it kind of felt good. Yeah. <laughs> a knee that was messed up suddenly wasn't messed up anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they all have this moment, like, they get snatched away before they actually die. Right. And I love, I actually love the conceit this whole conceit, I think, is really cool. You know, I don't know how much he planned this at the start when he wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but what he ended up doing was he ended up allowing all of these children who die in childhood to have lived full lives and had opportunities to grow and mature, learn what they needed to learn, and experience these rich, full lives. 
in other ways. Right. Discover nylon. Right. That prepared them to die. Well, Susan didn't die. Yeah. What the reason Susan's not in Aslan's country is not because Susan died and, and went wasn't and went to the Shadowlands or went to went to whatever. She's just still in the Shadowlands. She's still on Earth. Yeah, right. She's still in England. We don't know what's going to happen. Which with that was Susan. I, I, I misremembered this book altogether. I thought that she dies too and goes to no. She's the only survivor. Yeah. I just completely forgot the ending. Of and this why book. is she the only survivor? Well, she's not the, she's not learned all she needs to know. Maybe yeah. you know that, or she's forgotten. But these, these kids. So what's cool about that conceit is just the reality that God really does, in fact, not through magical wardrobes and magical lands, but He really does prepare people, His people, for death. The full life is the life that's lived to the glory of God. Until you die, whether you die at six or eight or 10 or 30 or 40 or 120. So I, I just think that that's a neat conceit. But if we could have uh, uh, had them be uh, kind of have a little baptism through pain, that wouldn't have, wouldn't have hurt anything in terms of an actual metaphor for death. The fact that they all kind of get why away couldn't with- we? Why you? He was so close to the end. Why couldn't Eustace have taken the blade? And yes, painful and hard for a kid. I was going to say, maybe the answer is just, we don't want to traumatize our five-year-old that's reading the story. I don't know. No, five-year-olds reading this story. Right, that's having the story read to them. Maybe some five-year-olds are. Right. Very exceptional five-year-olds are, but... The blade sinks into Eustace. And <laughs> but but if, you think, if you think really we're talking about kids nine, nine through 12 or eight through 12, and maybe 12 is a little old, but just the same. Eustace would have been a great character to have the blade go through. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Think of where Eustace began. Think of all he's been through. Think of Eustace. Think of what it would do for Eustace in your mind and in your heart and the affection that you would look back on Eustace with. Oh, sure. If Eustace took a blade through the ribs. Yeah, I don't disagree. And I think, I think there's a way you could do it that kids would be on board for because kids actually need these stories to process the darkness and pain that this is how they process well, a lot let, of it. Let Jill get drug in through her by her hair. Let Tyrion have the if I'm going in, you're coming with me moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let Eustace fall by the sword. That would have been neat. I, I don't want to quibble with it too much. Well, it's not really worth quibbling with. It's just He does a lot of work that with that, that stupid bear, actually. He I really mean, does in terms of yeah. just giving us that moment with some random character. Well and even yeah. just like the, I'm not disagreeing with the you. little subtle pay uh, the subtle setups of the bear. He's always confused, always confused, and yeah. then he's still confused and dead. With Eustace, you, it would also have been good it's, dramatically because then you would have everybody else would have been in the stable door, and Eustace would have died outside, mm-hmm. and you would have been left wondering, "What's how's Eustace going to be a part of this now?" And so, and Eustace would have, but Eustace would have been there, yeah, right, just like, and so it would have been a good emotion. It would have been a great scene. moment, but maybe. I mean, I guess it's also explained, but here we get some weird Gnosticism stuff too, if you start thinking about it too deep, right? Before, if Peter and Lucy and Susan and Edmund or Eustace or Jill went into Narnia, they went to Narnia. They didn't leave their bodies behind in England yeah, and go to Narnia in spirit or inhabit new bodies. They went to Narnia. But here we have them dying the, the best well, I can make of it is that it's like Inception. As they're dying, they somehow... But their body's in the getting, moment of... 
their their moment of death is being stretched out while yeah. they're. I think we can make it work easy for the Pevens. The Pevensies. The Pevensies, because they just came to spirit world to heaven, basically. Whatever. Yeah. Who it's, cares about their right? It's just Jill it's just Jill and Eustace who apparently died in that train wreck, but still got whisk, whipsed, w- whisked, whisked, whisked in away. some cor- corporeal form to Narnia, which is weird. Maybe Lewis just doesn't want us to think too hard about it. You know, I'm going to say probably probably he didn't yeah. think too hard about it, and that's fine. I'm I'm willing to cut him some slack on that one. I will say, in, in reference to all this <laughs> stuff, I do love the way that he describes battle. I think it's important to make the note, the point, same point we've made in almost every one of these episodes, which is that Lewis fought through one of the most horrific battles. And I just love how... Yeah. I love how matter of fact he is. He's willing to make give it the glory, give it the heroism, give you those lethal weapon moments. He's also just willing to make it bloody and dirty and boring and terrible. And again, you have Eustace having beginner's luck mm-hmm. and actually getting his first kill. Yeah, it's very similar. To, Tyrion takes has to take him longer because he knows what he's doing. Because he knows what he's doing. <laughs> and yeah. Eustace has um, the great where he yeah. hopes he will not be a coward. Yeah. Then you have the actual battle scene, and Eustace looks down, and the fox is dead, and he yeah he, he wonders he, he thought he killed it yeah he's like yeah. he wonders if he's the one that killed that, that fox or what. All he knows is that he somehow managed to stay alive, right? And also, he points out that once it's actually happening, which is if anybody's ever actually been through anything dangerous, you know, it's kind of true. You either forget it, or when it's happening, it suddenly doesn't seem. Strange. It just yeah. seems like something normal. Is it's going just something on. you need to do. And, and in that instant, it. you're just not thinking about the danger. You're just thinking about. He really captures those moments. Yeah. It does and a good job because he lived through it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So he actually had bullets flying around his head. Well, and I, what I love, especially given the brutality of what Lewis went through, is that <clears throat> he doesn't give us the scene that I'm sure somebody like J.K. Rowling or some more modern progressive author would give us, where Eustace has to be all sad because he got his first kill. Where, where he has to, it's like, it's a good thing. We had to kill him. It was necessary. It was necessary. But ultimately, like, killing is still really sucks. Mrs. Weasley wasn't too sad to kill Bellatrix. No, she wasn't. She wasn't. But that was, well, forget about Harry Potter. We don't have to talk about Harry Potter. That was fan service. Yeah, that was, yeah. Just, that was just that fan was service in that moment. I hate that moment. I think that's one of the dumbest moments in all of Harry Potter. I think you're right. Um, By the way, Order of the Phoenix, book five, The Horse and His Boy, book five. Maybe she probably five. did it as an homage. She's like, I'm yeah, just going to make book, this suck. So it, book fives <laughs> just kind of strike out. Right. And that's, I, I think that's kind of where we, for a minute, wondered if we wanted to carry on with Harry Potter. Right. <clears throat> well, as, as, as my, my brother was a Marine and then he was a police officer, so maybe this is personal to me. But there's this weight that progressives expect these people to carry where... Not only might you have PTSD, but you almost should have PTSD. If you don't, maybe there's... Maybe Something you're just inhuman a or cold, yeah. Yeah. Right. And it's like, that's not true. My brother has had to deal with some awful things that he's experienced and worked through them. And he, you know, by God's grace has been able to work through them and it hasn't always been easy. So I don't want to make light of it. But at the same time, it's a job to him. And it's something that he can work through. And it's a good God-honoring job. And he doesn't need to add this extra burden of, it's necessary for me to wield a gun, but I should also feel bad about it all the time. It's necessary for me to go into Afghanistan as he did, but I also need to feel bad about the necessity of ever going into Afghanistan. Luce doesn't have any of that. Edmund kills the guy. He should have cleaned his sword. He's kind of hyped up after it. It's just a thing that happened, and it's terrible. It's not made a big point of it. I just can't imagine a modern author not feeling like they really needed to deal with that one way or another. Like how? I like that Tyrion makes him clean his sword. 
Yeah. Yeah. Although it always feels weird to me that the kids have to, it's not really a flaw so much as just a observation of, of the kind of weird dynamic that Lewis has to work with, that these kids are like these these characters for out of legend and lore and everybody's waiting on them and Tyrion like prays that the kids would come and then they come and then he's still gonna treat them like kids. Well, but he... He say, he calls them my subjects at a certain point and I was like... Does he? Yeah. But he also is pretty deferential to them at, at first. Yeah, he is deferential, but then you've got the moments where he's more of a parental figure like Lewis uh, or uh, what's his face? Ed, yeah, he, uh, used to say, she, she'd be knighted for that. To... And, you know, if she's like, boy, she'd be whipped for that. You know, there's like yeah. all those kinds of yeah. moments. And I, I guess to be fair, if it was the Pavenicors, Pav- then we would know that they were treated with great uh, deference by by Caspian. They they were also the original kings and queens of Narnia. Eustace yeah. and Jill were just some weirdos that showed up and saved Rillian and turned into a dragon. Turned into a dragon. But they're like heroes out of legend. And then he's like, eh, you should clean your sword. What else do you guys want to talk about? Did you like Eustace and Jill in this story? They were Eustace and Jill, yeah. I didn't yeah. think that they were. I was really disappointed with Jill. Jill's a crafty woodsman i didn't mind that actually that felt a little fan service like she's got a map in her head now yeah i just i just imagine that lewis must have gotten letters from little girls that were just like did you have to have her crying in the corner while all the men killed the snake and lewis perhaps rightfully said well let's give her something to do i mean they're all about to die and so even and then at that moment she's going to help fight and there's the nice scene where jewel tells her that if she's going to cry to turn her face so she doesn't wet her bow. But she was such a hard case in Silver Chair. Her and Eustace are so th- nasty. And I, that's one of my favorite things about Silver Chair is that they just seem like real kids who haven't been well brought up. And they're doing the best that they can. Fun, like Eustace is still making, even in heaven, <laughs> Eustace is making these pedantic little comments. And Lewis is like, yeah, that's the kind of thing that Eustace would say. But Jill in this one goes from being a pretty realistically just grubby little girl to being more of a Lucy surrogate. She's she's just like really sweet and she's nuzzling Puzzle and she saves Puzzle and she's excited about the unicorn. She just feels like generic girl character to me more than the character that I really liked. I can see in that. In Silver Chair. I missed it. It's like she gets to do all this cool warrior stuff, which kind of, I guess, makes her stronger. But to me, she actually felt less strong she felt more like just the generic female character i had never thought of it i hadn't thought of it nathan i think there's something to it she definitely isn't the jill well from the silver chair well what's what's fun with our characters each time they show up in narnia is tracking their their progress and their changes so edmund's nasty right in the first book and in Caspian, Edmund's awesome. And Peter is the high king. And you've got these things that happen. And yet they're still kids or they still have problems or they're, they're still not quite believing Lucy here or whatever. And Eustace starts out as there once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub and he almost deserved it. You know, the petulant little brat who then has grown and matured quite a bit by Silverchair but is still got that residual petulant brat about him, which we appreciated the fact that he wasn't just suddenly, you know, right. like no, now Noble Edmund is who's lived as a king. And, you know, he, no, and then he's, he's better boy. still in this book, but he's even better so, in this he's, book, and if somebody's going to say the petulant thing, it's still going to be 
him. But at the same time, to see Jill have made a leap is something that you're expecting her to make. And so I don't think I've ever, and in this read, I've never felt bad about Jill making a leap, about Jill being changed. I was fine with her making a leap, but I think I'm just so used to Lewis doing a good job with those leaps so you can kind of track them. I didn't track Jill in this one. She just she just felt like a- Lucy. She just felt like Lucy. Susan. Yeah, she just felt like a different character. She felt really sweet and really nice and really girly in a way that just didn't feel like Jill to me. Mm. Felt like Lewis didn't remember who Jill was and just wrote- mm wrote the girl. I'm trying to remember. I feel like there might have been some things at that tower that they went to that felt pretty Jillish. Yeah, that's possible. Um uh, I'm trying to remember. Well, and so much of Jill and Eustace was just them fighting. Right. That if we're not gonna If we take that away. If we then... take that away, what is there really? Maybe maybe a little bit more banter between the two of them would have done it for me. Just 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 a little slight, you know, edge, slight competitive. You didn't but get yeah, you didn't there, get much of that. There is something, Jake's right, there's something that happened that I even I thought of. She kills a bird and... She says something and then Eustace responds to her in a kind of snarky way. It felt like the old Eustace and Jill. So uh, there are elements of it. But mostly you get like, Eustace killed the guy and now Jill was feeling shy. It's not a problem. I I, I don't mind that as a characteristic for a girl. It just didn't feel much like... She wants the pony. Yeah, she she loves the pony. She wants to nuzzle the unicorn. Yeah. I think you just don't like girls, Nathan. I like Lucy. I just didn't need two Lucys. I didn't need Lucy. I didn't need Diet Lucy. I like the real with Lucy well enough. All right. Nate. Well, probably. Uh, uh, I don't know. Listeners, what do you think? Did you like Jill in this book? You probably did. Did you think she was a little bit of a Mary Sue though? I was waiting for Mary Sue to come out of your mouth. Yeah. Well, that's that's what I think. She felt like a Mary yeah. Sue to me. She felt like we 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 just lost a little bit of what we what, what I what I really admired about Jill. Her pluck, her and her spirit, and her bit of a bit of a hard edge to her that I that I liked actually in the. In the in the silver chair, which, as I've said, is my is my seven lamppost book. So you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm making uh, being too hard in the comparison. What else do you guys want to talk about? We've, Aslan really does not make much of an appearance in these last two books, does he? No, and no, it's better for, for the it. better. Uh, do you think that maybe Lewis? Do you think maybe he'd lost a little bit of the mystique with uh, Aslan? Is so prominent, especially from. Like like in, in in Lion the Witch and the Wardrobe, he's romping and they're riding on his back and well, but also he doesn't show up till the third act, and we spend a whole lot of time in suspense about who he is, about who he is, and then we need to establish. And then we who pay he is. it off. Caspian, right. he shows up. He's got the big back. He, he he saves them again in the third act. Basically, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. He's all over the place doing these little like pop ends to it's one of the weaker the little of ca- cameos though right but he also gets some wise words and they get to see yeah. him at the end of the world he's a lamb at the end he's a lamb all that great stuff uh silver chair one of the least amounts of aslan but you he's get, there at the beginning you get but... a big scene with him at the beginning and at the end and then horse and his boy we don't need to rehash retash some of the best that, aslan some of the best aslan a lot of aslan a lot of aslan directly interfering and Direct it, directing the whole plot. Right. Yeah. Aslan is basically the He's protagonist. The, he is almost. the driving yeah, force of the... He is the... the driving force of that plot. And then in these last two books, even when he shows up, it's like we're standing outside him. We don't get a lot of moments of personal connection with him. You know, we do. We get a few in Magician's Nephew and then maybe one or two in this one. But do you think Lewis was making any particular point or was he just tired? We of- get a lot of Aslan in Magician's Nephew. It's just that what we don't get are direct interactions with our characters. Right. We're we sort of standing outside obs- and watching him. him. Yeah. 
It's like we're hiding behind a bush watching this character do something as a and, then, and we get the same kind of thing in the last battle where he's directing the apocalypse in the same way that he was directing in creation. But it is just sort of like we're watching. Right. We're observing him. Until the last page when he shows up to, even then, not dispense any particular pearls of wisdom, but just say, hey, you remember how we heavily implied that you died in a train in the most obvious way possible? You did. That's what really happened. You died in a train. Now go swim up that waterfall. Go swim up. That was cool. I like that waterfall (laughs) thing. Yeah. Like Danny Day-Lewis in uh, Last of the Mohegans. Yeah. Does he Except, swim up a waterfall well, backwards? Well, he, he does some. No, he doesn't. <laughs> like Danny Day-Lewis in Last of the Mohegans, if you watch it while with on Rewind. Now, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, okay. Further yeah. up and further in. Further up and further in. Further up and further in. Reepicheep, yeah. Reepicheep is in the Garden of Eden. New Eden. So is Tumnus. So is Tumnus. Yeah, he's there. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And you can do this weird binocular eye thing. That's pretty cool. I, I guess we were all expecting... And you can run super fast. You can run super fast. Without growing and can weary. you fly? Maybe. The thing I kept thinking about that running scene is this would be absolutely ridiculous if they made the movie. This would look like a Looney Tunes, like <laughs> <laughs> we would pause and like like Roadrunner or something like that. Like there's no way to do a dignified version of that scene. I can't imagine what it would look like. The fact that they're all just like running at the speed of a arrow. And they're not tired. Yeah. It's a, it's a nice moment in the book, and uh, neo neoplatonism for the win. I mean, we knew it all along, and C.S. Lewis just comes out and tells us. I had forgotten that that happened. I was quite glad, yeah. given how I was glad, especially for you, Brandon, because I think in these episodes, a lot of times you've been like, "Here's some more of ne- Lewis's Platonism." Probably our, some of our listeners have been like, "Well, Brandon, do you have to harp on about that?" And we've then, had people even write, "Well, do you really have to harp on about that?" So, well. Apparently it did. Yeah, we did because Diggory, me and old Diggory. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is the professor. What do they teach in these schools anyway? Yeah. I just yeah, I'm right there with him. Diggory is the C.S. Lewis stand-in. Uh, what did you guys think of Heaven? What did I think of Heaven? I mean, I thought it was weird, <laughs> but I wasn't expecting anything else. Uh, I always thought it was cool. Yeah, it didn't bother me. I, it wasn't bother uh, the stuff that. You and I especially said bothered us about Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Like, I could drown myself in the lilies. And (laughs) there wasn't anything like that. The rocks were just more real than rocks here. And the best you can think of it is thinking about a mirror that is somehow looks deeper and richer than our world. That was a weird analogy. That was a weird analogy. I thought he was going to say that the mirror was the old world and like he reversed it. Yeah, it was a weird reversal. Yeah. But what is good about, I mean... Set aside the Platonism. What's good about this view of heaven is that so many people have this ethereal view of heaven, mm-hmm. and Lewis loves to turn that on its head. No, he- heaven. He, we're not looking looking for heaven. Heaven is the place we go while we're waiting for the resurrection of the body, mm-hmm. and in, in the new heavens and the new earth, and everything is going to be better, and it's not going to be better by being less material. Right. And so Lewis loves to turn it on its head and say- Here's where we find the real material. Yeah, whatever whatever is real to us now, it's only more real. Well, I love that moment in The Great Divorce, actually. It's the one really great moment from that book when the guy is standing on the grass in heaven and it's stabbing into his feet and he realizes that he's a specter, which is, gets into all kinds of weird stuff in that book. But yeah, it's, just, he, it's just a nice little image of what would the grass be like 
Yeah, well, and in the the idea even of, and I think that this is uh, said or alluded to in the Great Divorce or wherever. The idea that hey, maybe when we see Jesus sort of pass through walls after he's been resurrected, maybe it's not because he's more ethereal or has mm-hmm. a more ethereal body. Maybe it's because he has that much more solid of a body. Right. That by comparison, we're ethereal and our walls are mists and vapor to him. Right. That's neat. It's That's really a cool. neat thought. Great. Throw that thought out there. Who knows if it's true? But no eye is seen and no ear is heard, yeah. nor mind conceived the glories to be revealed to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so that's neat that Lewis helped me think beyond myself a little bit and, and beyond some wrong-headed ways of of looking at our final state. But that's about where it stops Yep, and where it should stop. Anybody who takes this as a, what, an accurate depiction of the afterlife as anything but the loosest but, set. But of- what you can do is you can, if you go through it, and if it does feel exciting or cool or exhilarating, or man, wouldn't it be cool if it was like that? Oh, this sort of blows up what I thought would be cool because this sounds really cool. What you can do with that is say, huh. Whatever the real thing is. It's a million times better than that because a million times better than what old Clive Staples could come up with. And if that can be ex- if that can be exciting to me, how lame is that compared to what? Well, I think Lewis would be the first to admit that, and I think he yeah. does a nice job of building that into his story of just saying he actually says like I can't tell you what happened. You have to be. You, you I had can't to be tell there. you what it tastes like, but yeah, just understand it's beyond you, and it's amazing, and that's He's just really giving you a cheap imitation. He admits that, yeah. right? That's really all you need to know. Uh, what did you guys think? Gets of- sad at the end. What gets sad? Gets sad. The it book. Gets sad. It all gets sad. It's sad because we have to say goodbye. Oh, because it's the end of the book. But England and is the end just of our a- character. Yeah. Hey, things that Lewis does better than Rowling, since we brought her up in the. Uh, he doesn't have a horrible last chapter where no, everyone's like, "Well, we've been in heaven for a year, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> look at the babies we've had. <laughs> look now. at the babies we've had. <clears throat> I named yeah. mine after Reepicheep." He does not do that. Reap a cheap jewel. <laughs> Reap a cheap jewel. It's it, it. This idea here at the very end, after he's like, oh, so things, uh, you know, he no longer looked at them like a lion. Things were so great. And people, I can't write them. This, for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Pretty Sorry, cool. that's great. That's great. That's great. That's fantastic. Well, that's Lewis doing the opposite of what he's done at his worst, which is at the worst he said, let's take a little peek into the fantastic. Let's see a little beyond the veil. But now he's like, I'm going to close the curtain on the veil because... You can't actually know about it, but it sure would be neat if you could. But And all this stuff that you are living for and that you imagine is life, it's the beginning. It's the it's precursor. The it's the title page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You haven't even hit chapter one yet. That's a nice thought. I was surprised by how much I liked that whole section. Yeah, And it's it's really hard to do. I mean- who wants to read Paradiso by Milton for crying out loud? Like Inferno is the does. one that you read. It's really hard to do any of that. The, f- the fact that he doesn't just fall on his fla- face is impressive. 
it's relatively easy as a sinful, depraved human being with any self-knowledge to imagine something, a, a land or a person or a thing that's worse than you. But trying to even begin to wrap your head around something that's better than you is really difficult. And the fact that we could argue about how well he does it, but the fact that he does it at all and doesn't just wipe out is pretty impressive. And the fact that it's not just boring and lame and, um, you know, like a goody two-shoes kind of treacly. Like it's, he spends the right amount of time there. He achieves the effects in a literary sense that he wants to achieve. And then he gets out and, and like wraps it up he, nicely. Yeah, he closes yeah. the curtain. And Close. it's a nice closing of the curtain. Yeah, it really is a just a nice, you feel that curtain close. Yeah. For all the flaws and the silliness of some of the other books, it is a nice closing. And mm-hmm. it's like it's like Surprised by Joy. He has all the weirdness that happens in that book. Then at the end, he also says, but don't take any of this too seriously. Right. The real story is one that I can't even write. All right, I want to Lewis, talk. Lewis was good at that. I want to talk about two things before we wrap up here. Yeah, the dwarves, uh-huh. and I want to circle back to poor old Susan. So, what do we think about the dwarves? The dwarves are for the dwarves. Is they got to heaven somehow, but they didn't know they were there. Only some of them. What was Lewis going for there, and do we like it? They're getting to heaven. Uh, well, just any of what uh, where they end up, I guess. Well, I like the idea of. The dwarves being just treacherous agnostics who hate everybody and everything. I think that that brings another level of when they start mowing down the horses. Oh, man, that's brutal. That's brutal. And it brings this whole other level of tension and darkness to this story that elevates it. And it's so spiteful and just like, yeah, you didn't have to do that. And you could see it coming that it was because you knew what else was going on that they were cutting off their own heads at that point without right. realizing it. They didn't know that another army, a Calarmine army was coming. They thought they were keeping the odds equal and they shifted the odds too far in the other direction without realizing it. That whole conceit and the dwarves are for the dwarves, it's a good... It's telling. It's it's a Yeah, it's a good metaphor. Well, but, but, yeah. but okay, so then you get to the place where you have what's a wonderful story conceit that is built out of bad theology that infects Lewis and that Lewis has spread and that we see spread. Well, we are familiar with, and perhaps some of our listeners are familiar with people, in, not out there, but in our circles, conservative Christians who say that hell really is, is of our own making. If you go to hell, theologically, they say, if you go to hell, it's because you chose to be there. It's because you want to be there. It's because it's your own made. It's all it's all your own self made prison, right? And you wouldn't accept God anyway. So that's the you're you're where you think you'll be most happy, and of course you're miserable. But it's because, like in Weight of Glory, you've just become a more selfish and monstrous person, and at last you've you've made your own p- prison. And what that does, and while there's some truth to that, what that does is it removes from it the reality. That God judges and God pours out his punishes wrath and, and pours out his wrath is angry with and hates. There's weeping in that. You are not in hell because you want to be there. You're in hell because God wants you to be there. Absolutely. And it removes God's agency. You may hate God and not want to have anything to do with God, but you hate God for putting you in hell too while you're there. Like right. there's no connect there's no disconnecting hell from the active righteous wrath of a holy God being actively poured out on you is not some passive thing that if only you would open your eyes, you could escape. Well, it's such a ridiculous conceit because it's like, I'm in a torture chamber. The king has put me in a torture chamber, but I rebelled against the king. So I really want, no, you don't want to be in the torture chamber. You want to 
not be in the torture chamber. You want to kill the king. You want to kill the king. Put him in the torture chamber. But that doesn't mean that because you, in a series of life choices, chose the torture chamber, it's what you really want. No. The king is pouring out his wrath on you, and you're miserable. You take away... Yeah, you know, what you have is you have Aslan is just sort of sad, like, let me show you what I can do for them. I can give them great things and they will they will turn it into instruments of their own self-torture. I, I, I'm longing to give them all these great things and to share w- with them these joys of heaven, but they choose to keep their eyes shut. They choose to live in darkness. They choose to to punish themselves. And that ain't it, chief. God punishes the wicked. And pours his wrath out on the wicked. And that's a cheap, tame Aslan. One thing, by the way, that I just loved throughout the course of this book that I can't believe we haven't said yet is Lewis's self-parody of he's not a tame lion. Oh, yeah. He took the catchphrase and he just the like ran it into the ground and, and the bad the guys ground. use it. And, the- and, to, and use it in the most terrible ways possible and twist it and to make it into things that it could never mean. To such a degree that when the good guys come back and try to use it properly, it-, it, you, it understand, you, ex- you understand why the Narnians are like, uh, no. nope, uh, <laughs> not sure. having it. Yeah. Lewis was again it. his own best critic and and the best critic of everyone that's come after him and tried to snatch on little things like that and use them as great truisms to, to live their lives by. It's like it's a handy little phrase, but that's all it is. <laughs> yeah, that's and totally one right. that's easily perverted and one that's easily perverted. Yeah, but I, what I want to say about the dwarves, I think once again, bad. It's a conceit. This is number four hundred and thirty seventh in Lewis, where it's a bad conceit theologically. And if we can just use it in earthly terms, it's pretty handy, right? We all yeah. know people. We all have family members. We have, pe- we have people in our church who are Live living in, in the midst of, of their own making. Right. And they, they people who who God has poured out so many gifts on, and they simply do not see them. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I would have gathered you under my wings. Right. But you would not. Mm-hmm. Right. And you, Here's the Messiah come to you, and you you will not listen. You will not hear. He has all of his good gifts for you. He has salvation, he has healing, he has truth, words to live by that will change your life, and you will not hear him. This is God-made flesh, and you will not hear, you will not listen, and you will you will live in a prison of your own making until you die and God throws you into a prison of his making. Right, which is what doesn't happen. Which is what doesn't happen. So it's a good metaphor for the reality of the way people, and even then, God is sovereign over those choices that you make. That's right. And God is superintending them. And you do become your own worst enemy. And that is in itself God's judgment on you. Right. So that we we see in Romans, God gives them over to a debased mind so that they will do the things, which that's just the way that it works. It snowballs. You reject God. He curses you. He gives you over to a debased mind. You begin to do things that hurt yourself in this life. Even as he's being kind to you. God really would have to be a very tame lion to be like, well, I want to give you a gift, but you won't accept it. That never happens. No, what's great about God is that he looks at us and he says, I want to give you a gift. You won't receive it. So guess what I have to do? I've got to change you. Uh, I'm going to give you that gift too. I'm going to give you the gift of changing you. I'm going to make you new. I'm going to say to your dead bones, rise and live. It's like the old Sunday school metaphor of, you know, God knocking on our hearts. Won't you please let me in? That's not how God works. Kicks the door down. He kicks the door down. 
That would have been awesome. Aslan just kicking the stable door down. <laughs> just grabbing those dwarves. Yeah. Gobbling them up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You want to create a hell? I'll create a hell. <laughs> well, and again, if there's some semblance of hell, it's still you get what you want, but it's it's Tash. It's the devil that mm-hmm. is the agent in it. And somehow they're still in Aslan's country or are they or what? Yeah, it's weird. Purgatory, maybe. I don't know. Uh, oh, Tash was super creepy, though. I forgot that he actually made an appearance in this story. That was awesome. Guy actually got a little bit of a chill when they saw him in the woods. That's a really spooky, yeah. just this spooky. floating four-armed bird man. Suddenly got a little horror scene in there. And then when he shows up at the end. and Yeah, it felt like Frank Peretti. Yeah, <laughs> it did feel like Frank Peretti, Brandon. <laughs> uh, well, oh. Susan. Susan, Yeah. I have a theory about Susan. You guys want to hear Nathan's awesome theory about Susan? Let's I have it. a theory. Can I give it? Yeah, please. Oh, you go ahead. Let's, no, let's hear Brandon's awesome theory about Susan. I have a theory that you're supposed to assume that after all, her family dies traumatically in a train accident that maybe it shakes her out of her self-absorption. No, I think she's just like staring at nylons. Yeah. Go ahead, Nathan. Let's hear Finally, your theory. Finally, I'm getting the inheritance money. I can buy more <laughs> nylons and <laughs> lipstick. Covering herself in nylons. So Philip, uh, what's the name of the guy that wrote his Dark Materials? Philip Pullman. Glass. Yeah, no, Philip Pullman. And also J.K. Rowling and maybe Neil Gaiman. number of modern famous fantasy people have said they hate the conceit of Susan, that it's just Lewis. Specifically, they said that it's Lewis being misogynist because she became a sexually aware woman. She couldn't go to heaven. Oh. Which is pretty bogus, right? I don't think it's that bogus. <laughs> I don't think it's that bogus. I literally, I think Lewis, I was thinking about it, and I thought, you know what? Lewis is a bachelor. He's avoided, you know, if you think about his biography, until he finally met what's her face at the end of his life. He really he lived with his brother. He had lived in primarily male, and first in school, then in battle, then in school again for the rest of his life. This is a dude that probably actually doesn't really know how to deal with grown up, mature women and so he he actually never has i thought about all of his books and i can't think of a single one that actually makes an appearance in his books so you've got old dotty kind of women characters like the beavers like mrs beaver i should say or like the old lady in uh, that hideous strength strength? you've got wise old somewhat sexless old women and then you've got girls and even the wife in that pretty erotic in that hideous strength, though. Yeah, but I it's think it's not just sexless. But he closes the curtain on. It's not that it's sexless. Like he, it's not that he. That hideous strength would be the exception, maybe. But I actually think we get to those characters maybe at the very last page of that book, entering into something that will one day grow into sexual maturity. Actually, the woman in that book, Jane, Jane Studdick. Uh-huh. I actually remember her name. I didn't have to look that up. And her husband, Mark, they're both really immature. She, Jane That's it, the point is as they are moving towards one another is they've, you know, Mark is realizing his immaturity. How had he dared and dared with no sense of daring? Yeah, one of the yeah. best lines from all of right. Lewis, which by the way, if people want to hear us just love on Lewis, go back and listen to our strength. Uh, I think we're pretty happy with that book. But, that was before our Lewis. No, yeah, that was maybe that was before, before we, our Lewis epiphany. Before till we have faces yeah. before we had to face that thing. So Jane, I think, in many ways, is a girl. It's not that she she's not a sexual being, but she's she's immature. She's arrested development. She's someone who hasn't really understood how to be a real woman. And I just don't think 
Lewis knew how to write that, actually. This is Nathan's theory, at least. He never wrote it. it he never even tried. You, you have girl characters and you have old lady characters and, and you have symbols. You know, you have the girl that Caspian marries. You have people that just kind of function as fairy princesses. Oh, star child. Uh, but and maybe one of you guys can think of an exception. I cannot think of just a sexually mature. I'm sorry to use that phrase. I'm not sure what a better one is. Other than Jane. Jane's not, though. Yeah. That's my point. And there what isn't about, one. <laughs> what about Suke? Suke? Psyche? Psyche? No. <laughs> What about Oriol? Nope. <laughs> no, she's a bitter single arrested development. Yeah. You got me, Nathan. Yeah. I don't think he could do it. Or it, uh, maybe he could do it, but he, he, I don't think he ever tried. I think Lewis, you know, they always say, right? Have what you, you read The Pilgrim's Regress? I haven't read The Pilgrim's Regress. I haven't either. I have. Brandon, is there a sexually mature, like, I don't remember. <laughs> married woman kind of character? No, I mean, just... it's just, uh, that's just a weird attempt at a retelling of the pilgrim's progress i'm not trying to criticize him by the way i think for a person in his position that would be the hardest character to write You're i think a mature woman is the hardest thing for any man to write actually he relatively no easy to, what's that his mother died yeah his mother died so he had no example yeah it's easy to like you he had joy he did have a joy yeah at the very end of his life but that was before that was after maybe, maybe if he'd had another decade he could have written a novel or even a children's story that featured a a woman yeah. But I don't think he actually knew how to write women. He knew how to write girls, and he knew how to write in between stages, and he knew how to write old women. Yeah, because not, that's that's what he knew. But not a woman. But not a not just a woman. Not like a a woman at the height of her womanliness. Yeah, I don't think he knew how to do it. I don't think lots of men know how to do it. Actually, I mean, there is one Tolstoy. Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. He's a genius. You know who else didn't know how to do it though? Uh, Charles Dickens. Oh no, he didn't. <laughs> Bram Stoker. <laughs> I think you yeah. could you could maybe define a lot of those guys as Dickens, no, arguably a genius. Yeah, arguably. Arguably, genius. <laughs> some of us would argue. Some of us would argue. Be interesting to think how many of our writers, how many of our male authors actually did know how to write a fully mature woman. You Stein? think of a female author that knew how to write men. Yeah. Well, J.K. Rowling. Yeah, J.K. Rowling. That's who I meant. You got it. <laughs> Uh, Dumbledore. <laughs> J.K. Rowling's actually, well, sorry, she's better than Lewis at writing women. Well, she tries to do it, and he doesn't. Well, she has a similar thing. She writes boys, but not men. Right. Exactly. Good parallel, Jake. I love it. She does not know how to write men in exactly the same way that she can't write, write full-grown men. She just, all of her male characters function as boys, even Snape and Dumbledore and the men, the guys that should have been, have enough age and experience to actually just be men. Sirius or Lupin? They come the closest. I think Lupin gets a lot of points because the actor that plays him in the movie, is for me at least, is, just, is really great. Yeah. And just seems like a real... Mr. Weasley? Yeah. I like the Weasleys as a couple. and Mrs. Weasley's the star of the house. Yeah, but Mrs. Weasley's obviously the... Where's the pants? We've talked about this with... She's a woman. That yeah. same kind of thing. So that's my theory. C.S. Lewis didn't know how to write women and didn't try. And I don't... That's not really a criticism. It's just yeah. an observation. I keep saying that and I believe it. Um, I believe it too. What a fun observation to end on. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, what that made me appreciate here, I'll, I, I might be able to spin this into something a little bit more. You got to bring it back to Susan. That's the diciest part oh. of your well of your okay. claim. That is the diciest part of the claim because she would have come back as a sexually mature woman, and he's like, nope, <laughs> <laughs> can't deal with you. Can't deal with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think that he consciously made that choice. I certainly don't think that he was condemning her to hell simply because she was sexually mature. Lewis, you know, you read that hideous strength. 
he may not know how to depict mature sexuality, but he certainly he's knows. an advocate of he's it. He's certainly an advocate of it. He's a very uh, <laughs> generous and uh, high-minded advocate of it. So, yeah, <laughs> no, get away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just I just think he didn't know how to write it. I think yeah. I think actually, prosaic marriage is the something um something, something as a great man once said prosaic marriage is the erotic necessity that fuels the modernist machine or something like that <laughs> I, I think that's very wrong that's a very wrong statement that 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 fights the modernist who knows we should put it on a t-shirt one day uh but yeah. but then this led to my other observation that might be a little bit more glorious to end on which is that i think lewis always wrote what he knew and i think that it's the strength of any writer. It's the strength of any writer, but then people might think, well, how did he write what he knew? He's He was writing about satyrs and fauns and stuff. A, he knew the mythology. But more than that, he basically writes battle and he writes debate scenes. You could say almost every scene in Narnia is like a fight scene, a something to do with battle, something that he would have experienced just sneaking onto the enemy lines, strategizing, or a scene where people sit around and talk and figure out what to do. And those are both basically the things that CS have counterpoints and devil's advocates. Right. And he, then and he puts uh, arguments, he puts, you know, the bad arguments in the hands of his enemies and he topples them. Right. And there's teachers and there's students and there's discipline and there's there's all these things that C.S. Lewis knew and he simply built a wonderful fan of, and he actually I guess he went he did fight in World War One, but that's pretty exciting. But really the scope of what he knew of the world was in some sense narrow. And yet yeah, he, he managed to build a really wonderful fantasy world where he just fleshed that out in all these really colorful ways. But really, if you think about the mechanics of what he's doing with it, it's pretty simple and it's based entirely in what he knew. So, and simple in children's books is a virtue. Simple in children's is books virtue. is absolutely a virtue. And that's why these books are timeless classics that we've spent as much time talking about as we have. Yeah, these have been some of our longest episodes just on an episode-to-episode basis. And this one might take the cake. We still have to do donor shout-outs, and then we will give our final lamppost rating, and we will be done with Narnia. What? Until such time as we circle back around to watch those wonderful Narnia movies, which we are not doing anytime soon, folks. Sorry, people. Maybe we'll do it sometime when we have- $2,000. Yeah. (laughs) $2,000. Let's do donor shout-outs real quick. Jake, how can someone get a donor shout-out if they want a donor shout-out? Oh, it's pretty easy. You go to patreon.com forward slash the booketing, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot C-O-M forward slash the booketing. Yes, sir. And you, uh, for as little as $10 a month, get your name and a hilarious appellation attached to it. A hilarious appellation, as you'll hear right now. Like a mountain. Yeah. Like a mountain. Appalachian. The yep. appellations are attached to you. No, so you'll get a giant mountain. <laughs> It'll be hilarious to see you crushed beneath the mountain because you gave 10 bucks to us. All right. All right, let's do this really fast. Yeah. Jake, you shout them out, and then Brandon, uh, you say what Narnia character they're most like. Oh, Nathan. <laughs> Why can't I shout him out and Jake say what Narnia character they most like? That's, that's fine. I, I really don't care. It just has to be fast. We'll just go back and forth. Okay. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll go back and forth. All right. All right. Uh, Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. There we go. The artful Anthony Dodger. The artful Anthony Dodger. Mr. Tumnus. All right. Little Anthony's Cigar Store. Little Anthony's Cigar Store. Cigar Store. Is it more like Archenland? <laughs> Narnia? Or, no, like or Tashbank? The, the Fishmonger's uh, <laughs> Shop. Whoa. Wow. Uh, Sorry, it was the first thing that I came up with. 
Yeah, yeah we gotta be fast. We're just going with this, with mental associations. Nobody's allowed to be offended by these. The immortal Chelsea E. The immortal Chelsea E. Susan. Oh boy, <laughs> Louis wouldn't know how to write about her. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Jill and Eustace. Ah, that's nice. Lily of the Valley. Lily of the Valley. Lucy. Andrew and Esther the Lovebirds. Andrew and Esther the Lovebirds. I get all the couples. <laughs> I gotta try to pair them. Uh, Caspian and the Star Princess. Nice. There you go. The Star Princess. The Keith Master. <laughs> the Keith Master. Uncle Andrew. David's Mighty Men Trucking. David's Mighty Men Trucking. The Dawn Treader. Nice. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. Oh, uh, what's his name? And Aravis. What's he become? Core. Uh, Core and Aravis. Core and Aravis. And Little Baby, whoever. Whoever they have. Yeah. They actually do find out about their lineage, but we don't, we're not going to look it up right now. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese, and Jay also C.S. Lewis, including until we have faces. Including C.S. Lewis, even until we have faces. The Calermine Army. Oh. Wow. Well, they do like Joey have Francis. <laughs> like those guys probably do. Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth. Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth. Uh, who's the girl from the first book? The White Witch? <laughs> what? Yeah, sure, the White Witch. <laughs> Brandon, you jerk. <laughs> <laughs> That's my mother you're talking about. I think the girl from the first book who becomes his uh, Diggory's live-in companion. Oh, Polly. Polly, yes. Uh, the, that's not, not the first book you well you big lug console Brandon, <laughs> you silly boy <laughs> console prime console prime adam console prime adam diggory yeah of course uh galactic princess emily galactic princess emily jadis wow <laughs> jeremy you the just d- did jadis you... no i didn't give it to her i gave her polly why don't you give her the snake oh, okay good yeah. uh jeremy the dark hooded lord of death jeremy the dark hooded lord of death Cash, of course. Who else would you be? Uh, Nathan, not me. Nathan, not Nathan. Nathan, not Nathan. He's say a name. Rabidash. Rabidash. Oh no, Maya. 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 Uh, Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Ryan Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith the Lady of the Justice. Uh, Reap a cheap and peep a cheap. Nice. Danny the Dude. Danny the Dude. Oh, it's my turn. One of those pod things. Duffel pets? Yeah, duffel pets. Wow. Pod. DJ Sammy G. DJ Sammy G. <laughs> These things never end up as complimentary <laughs> as I intend them to be. Caspian. Oh, no, nice. Wow, DJ Sammy G <laughs> drew an ace there. Benny and Dana Tiberius. Benny and Dana Tiberius. <laughs> oh, boy. Now I got to come up with a couple. Um, what are the couples that are left? There aren't too many. Andrew and Letty? No, Loon and his wife. Ah, oh, yeah, Mrs. Loon. Eric and Catherine <laughs> from Yon Window Breaks. Eric and Catherine from Yon Window Breaks. Mraz and his... Lady. His wife. <laughs> his lady. <laughs> Mrs. Mraz. <laughs> Professor and Lady X. Professor and Lady X. Um, Do the dwarf professor from Caspian? You... Yeah, the dwarf professor from Caspian and whatever lady he got. The nurse. The nurse. Lavender's green, Dylan, Dylan. Dylan lavender's blue. Lavender's green, Dylan, Dylan. I love you too. Once again, not the lyrics. Noah Constrictor. Oh, sorry. Who is uh, Lavender's green, Dylan? Dylan? Jewel. Ah, nice. Oh, Very nice. Nice. Unicorn. Nice. I like that jewel. Not a good name. Cool character. Noah Constrictor. Noah Constrictor. Of course he's really in. Because he fights a snake. Okay. Uh, <laughs> could be the green witch. Oh, he could the, be. Well, he's not a woman. Yeah, he's not a woman. Uh, Mary, Mar- uh, sorry, Marichip. 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 Yeah. Shift. Nice. 
Oh. Oh, shit. Oh, wow. Exactly. Sorry, Major Mary Sheep. <laughs> well, you got named after a cool Narnia character anyway. Natalie with the Battery of Kung Fu Mastery. Natalie with the Battery of Kung Fu Mastery. Uh, what's the donkey's name? Puzzle. 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 Wow. Sorry, Natalie. Fair and Fragrant Maiden Chloe. Fair and Fragrant Maiden Chloe. Has anybody even bitten Jill Poole yet? Yeah, we've already done Jill. Yeah. Right? Uh, the Lady of the Green Kirtle. Nice. Kind of. The six pack Zach with a meat. Not, not really. She's the. No, she's terrible. Yeah. Sorry, Chloe. But she has the fragrance. Six pack the... Jack with the mean attack. Six. Sorry, six pack Zach with the mean attack. <laughs> six pack Zach with the mean attack. Trillion. What? Nice. We hadn't used Trillion yet. Who's Trillion? I don't know. Trill. Uh, Trill. Trill bar. What's the name <laughs> of the guy from this book? <laughs> Trillzan. Trillskabar. <laughs> <laughs> Tyrion. 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 There we go. Thank you. <laughs> Should have been Trilskabar. Anthony, who is cold and hates life. That's right. He hates it. And he hates liberty. And what does he hate most of all? He hates the pursuit of cheese. Let me yeah. just say that all as one thing. Anthony, who is cold and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese. He's a cheese hater. He's hater. We know you, Anthony. We know your cheese hating ways. Cheese hater. Cheese hater. <laughs> Cheese hater. Cheese hater. You're just a cheese hater. Brandon, just say his name so that we can move on. Oh, it's your turn. <laughs> no, it's not. Oh, Eustace. Eustace. No, you're supposed to repeat his name. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Say it again. <laughs> Anthony, who is cold and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese. You Anthony, cheese who's hater. cold, hates life and liberty, and the pursuit cheese of cheese. Hater. You cheese hater. Cheese hater. Cheese hater. Yeah, cheese hater, you. Cheese hater. Okay. Cheese hater. Who are these guys? Wow, hater we... of cheese. Puddle glum. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. a good well, one. Only puddle glum could hate cheese like the cheese hater, Anthony, the cheese hater. Uh, Jiu-Jitsu <laughs> Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. Jiu-Jitsu <laughs> Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. Eustace Scrub. Cool. And we have a new donor. Do we? Welcome to the donor family, Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for supporting us. Yeah, hey, thanks Rachel. for supporting us, Rachel. We really appreciate it. And we are going to award you the coolest name of all Rachel Rachel <laughs> no she can't just be Rachel that would be fun if it would just Rachel uh, hey, you know it's pretty iconic you know there's only one Maya Maya but do we want to take that away from Maya no, and get... uh, no. but it, but, but would it be would, 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 would... There's, all, there's only one Nathan not Nathan too would we be taking it away from Maya Maya if we just gave her Rachel yes we would be would it be I don't know. Maya, Maya is not Maya. Maya's Maya. Maya. I think Rachel could be Rachel. Rachel. Actually, Rachel. that's a direct quote from Batman Begins. Rachel. Rachel. <laughs> Rachel. We have to do Martha. Like an echo <laughs> Martha. Martha. What? We have to do what like an echo say? chamber. Rachel. 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 Here we go. Oh yeah, I like the echo chamber. Let's try it one more time. Rachel. 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 Oh yeah, she's got we got a good thing going for Rachel. Rachel. All right. Rachel. <laughs> All right, thanks Rachel. Hope Rachel. Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, so many cool new. Can you think that just a month ago we didn't have Lavender's Green Dylan Dylan, No Constrictor, Marichip, Natalie with a Battery of Kung Fu Mastery, The Fair and Fragrant Maiden Chloe, Six Pack Zach with a Mean Attack, Anthony who's cold and hates life, Liberty in the Pursuit of Cheese, Jiu-Jitsu Jeffrey the Texas Ranger or Rachel? Rachel. Rachel. 
No, I can't. Weird. Yeah, it's kind of weird. All right, guys, time for the final. Oh, this we makes had me. Dylan, we just called him something different. Yeah, Dylan was like Dylan the Death Dealer or something like that, which is cool. But I wanted to, you know, can't, they can't all be like fantasy kind of names. It was Dylan the Death Dealer of Doom. No, he's. <laughs> Thanks to Mrs. Mensel, yep. who came up with that, which I, I I really liked. So thank you, Mrs. Mensel. I got a kick out of that. What is the name of this book that we are talking about today? So I can put the it last in the rankings. battle. The last battle. Who wants to tell me their lamp post rating first? You guys want to know the lamp post ratings again? Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe. Jake gave uh-huh. a six. Nathan gave a five. Brandon gave a six. Final ranking five point six. Repeating. Prince Caspian. Nathan gave it 5.5. Brandon gave it 5. Jake gave it 5 for a final ranking of 5.16 repeating. Not so good, but still pretty good. Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Nathan gave it 6. Brandon gave it 5 initially. Changed it to 6. Jake gave it 6. Final ranking 6. The Silver Chair. Nathan gave it 7. Brandon gave it 6.5. Jake gave it 5.5. Final ranking 6.25. The horse and his boy, I'm afraid... Much to the chagrin of our listeners. Nathan gave it five. Brandon gave it four. Old grumpy Brandon gave it four. Jake gave it five for a final booking ranking of four. You know what Brandon's going to do? What's Brandon going to do? Brandon's proven that he changes his scores. Brandon's lowering that sucker to a three. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Brandon's trying to bring it down. We give one book. One book falls below the... uh, the certified fresh rate. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let me. I'm gonna raise my. I'm gonna raise that just because you're a punk. Wait, Jake. You told us at some point that you were never raising them. Are you prepared to go back on that? Yeah, Jake. You don't go back on your word. Four point three repeating is what yeah, Brandon. Brandon has now reduced that it right. to. right. Brandon, don't do it. Don't no, do it. I'm not gonna let Jake change. You're the only one. All right. Changed. I'll stay at a four. Fine. Good. Thank you. You're welcome. The fans, thank you. The horse and his boy fans. Oh, they're already mad because I even thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> we certainly know how to win friends and influence people. Uh, the magician's nephew, pretty high ranking here. Uh, Nathan gave it six. Brandon gave it 6.75 with one arm of the lamppost planted behind it. <laughs> and Jake gave it 5.75. Oh. For a final ranking of 6.16 repeating. Silver Chair is still in the lead. Silver Chair is still in the re- lead. Yes, sir. I-, I can start us off. Yes, sir. I think Silver Chair deserves to stay in the lead. This was good, but it had some weirdness at the end. This is a six. This is a, a pure six? Yep. I wonder if that's <sighs> not... I'm trying to think if I actually enjoyed it as much as I did the Don Treader. That would be the question, or one of the questions that you could ask. I don't think I did. 5.9. <laughs> <laughs> You're the worst. <laughs> Five point nine. Okay. <laughs> All right, uh, Jake. What do you say? I'm pairing this guy up with magician's nephew, and he's getting five seven five. Five. Okay. This is gonna be the weirdest score. <laughs> five seven five. Um, I'm giving it a two. I hate donkeys. No, I'm not gonna do that. I won't do that. Um. I think I'm just going to give it a six. I'm not going to be weird like you guys. It won't end up with a six. Well, I can't give it a seven. It's not, I mean, just based on the, you know what? Fine. I'll try and bump it up as much as I can. But it's not like. Just give it a six. It's not, what did I give? I'd love to bump up the average a little bit, but I'm going to give it a six. Because that's what my heart tells me this book should have is a six. Yeah. If I do the math, that that means that. The wait, wait. 5.9, Nathan, plus 5.75, plus 6 divided by 3. You did this all in your head. Mm-hmm. What is it? Uh, 5.88. 8. 
three three repeating. Let me just verify this on my phone real fast. Whoa, Nathan, you're a math genius. I'm a math genius. <laughs> I'm such a math genius that I somehow got it in my head that if uh, Brandon brought down a, the rating for Horse and His Boy below four and a half, that somehow it would be a negative rating on a seven <laughs> star scale. So well, I can go back brilliant. to three. Brilliant. Good job, Brandon. Thank you. I put my foot down. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> Guys, it's very late. We're just trying to finish up Narnia. So let me give us the the, the final bookening ranking. Just let me speak from my heart and give it a three. <laughs> no, you don't get to. It's only only I get to speak. You are, from my heart. You're, you're too far removed to be able to listen to your heart right now. You. Yeah, your heart is full of spite and hatred. You deserve to be thrown into a shed with a, with a oh, no. with a falcon demon. <laughs> Falcon punch, um, <laughs> like a crow. Yeah, like a crow. Yeah, a raven. I, I kept imagining the Egyptian sun god Ra. That's, yeah, that's what I was yeah. imagining too. Uh, so <laughs> let me let me <laughs> before we all go insane. Let me just read off the Narnia rankings and any final thoughts you guys want to give. I have no final thoughts though. I have no final <laughs> thoughts. I really like Narnia, and I'm happy. This was a really fun series. I'm sorry that some of our listeners may not have enjoyed it as much as we did, but these were super fun books to talk about, and I really love these books, and I love talking about what's wrong with them because it's interesting and fun and enlightening to do so, in my humble opinion. Hold on to your horses when we do Tolkien. Coming in last, a, a performance that I know many of our listeners would have liked to have seen come in higher, but we spoke from our heart, and The Horse and His Boy, final booking ranking, the lowest one that there is, 4.6 repeating. Coming in second. A book that I think I would love to see this book ranked a little higher than it is. But you mean coming in sixth. Yeah, coming in sixth. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> After all this. The horse and his boy wins. It's like we've been doing golf score the whole time. Uh, so yeah, coming in sixth, Prince Caspian. I would actually maybe bump my score up if I could. I, I would love to see that book rank a little higher than it did, but you know what? It's not one of the better ones. Coming in third. What was its score? Uh, what? What was its final it's score? Fi- I'm sorry, final score 5.16 repeating. Okay. So it, that, that it's probably right. about right, I guess. Sounds right. But now, this one surely will be controversial because coming in fifth, I bet, I, I can't imagine a lot of our listeners would agree with this. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe comes in the our fifth most like Narnia book at 5.6 wow. repeating. Um, I think just kind of overuse is probably dulled the edge on that one, right? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm propping it up by giving it a six for that. Uh, to be fair, Brendan also gave it a six. I think he was okay. in a more generous frame of mind when I we started very this generous. series. See, people, I can be generous. Uh, coming in fourth, the book of the day, The Last hey, I'll Battle. Bump, I'll bump that up to 6.5 if you'll let me bump. <laughs> Brendan. Stop. I'll you'll trade. I'll stop. You'll trade. People, I am just joking. I'm having some fun. I'm tired. I want to go home. <laughs> yeah, it's been, I'm sorry. Well, we're, we're finishing up here so Brennan can go home. Uh, last battle came in 5.883 repeating. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best score. <laughs> this is a wonderful score. Fourth, the fourth feels about right for that one. I bet a lot of people will probably put it lower, but that's fine. Very strong ranking. Third favorite Narnia book of ours and i think jake Don did J- jake did some yeoman yeoman's yeoman's work convincing us on this one but i think we all came around voyage of the dawn treader straight six beating it though very interestingly the magician's nephew 
our second favorite Narnia book, guys. Boo. At 6.1666 repeating. Bad call. Your, your personal list, Jake, you'd put that one a decent amount lower, you think? I think but, so. I think it got some points for being fresh and less familiar that maybe it doesn't deserve as a book in and of itself. And certainly, well, that's my opinion. I wouldn't put it above Don Treader. That's where the that's where the sting is coming for him. Yeah, I'll be yeah. interested to see how our 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 listeners weigh in on this one. I mean, I know that they won't like the horse and the boy being last, but how do, how will they feel about the magician's nephew achieving such rank? Um, and how will they feel? I think probably. Boo. Well, yeah, we know how Jake feels about it. This is great. But the silver chair, well deserved, came through with uh, I would say well deserved best Narnia book of them all. Final ranking six point two five. I think probably a lot of our listeners will be happy with that. They won't be happy about the horse and his boy being last. Probably everyone can agree Prince Caspian belongs near the bottom. None of them deserve less than a four. No. They all get in the four range. You know, actually, they kind of all get in the seven range because they're all wonderful classic books that people really enjoy and we really enjoy. And for the purposes of having fun on a podcast, uh, you can rank them, but... This has all been for not just give them all sevens. Yep. <laughs> uh, outside of Tolkien, I mean, in terms of children fantasy series, we're talking about the top, right? This yeah. is the top of the heap. Yeah. This is it. No, we're talking, there's a very small conversation, and it's Narnia, Potter, and Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's about it. Yeah. There's Percy there's, Jackson. And then there's everything else, right? <laughs> Percy Jackson, yeah. yeah. Well, you put it on a shelf with Percy Jackson, and suddenly my statement that these are all seven lamppost books makes sense. No, I, yes, yeah. Percy's like a two lamppost. The Narnia thing. as a series of seven books gets a seven. Yep. Now, folks, Jake is Jake is now Jake has actually been working on the tally to see what the average ranking for all of Narnia. If you put all those lamppost ratings together, you can get and then, and then you divide them by seven, you can get the average booking rating for a Narnia book. If you're a person who didn't understand how averages work, now you do. Now you do. Here it is. You ready? I'm ready. 5.69. 5.69. Yep. There you go. Completely useless stat to end on. Maybe kind of captures about there where we feel as adults. 5.69 divided by 7. If this was a grade, it could say B. There you go. It's an 80, basically like an 81. We docked Narnia letter grade for the weirdness and- it's a B minus. It gets 81.2. Yep. There we go. But really, it gets an A. We love Narnia. And we love you, listener. You get an A plus in our book. You get an A plus in our book. Boogie Day was uh, had me, had Jake, had Brandon. We'll be back next week with Shakespeare, I guess. <laughs> it's been a while since we've been on our regular schedule, but we'll try and get back on that. Try and aim for Tolstoy sometime in uh, your late December. Midnight's Children. Kind of thing. Also, you got your Midnight's Children and your Shakespeare. We're student, or we're still doing it. Oh, and, and your the entire month of October, which we're now in. Yeah, and your horror books and your plays. Tennessee Williams and... <laughs> Basically, <laughs> Tolstoy's coming in January. We got like... <laughs> yeah, 
that's true. We've got like half a year of booking left. That's not literally true, but that's kind of what it feels like. But we'll try and make each episode entertaining and awesome and try. We will. Yeah. Patreon.com forward slash the booking. Support us. Get us to $1,000 by October 31st. And we will dress as swans. We will play trumpets. And we will march around the city of Bloomington's courthouse seven times. The more important reason to do that, though, is so that we can do Tolkien next year. We would really love to make 2020 the year of Tolkien. Bye.